Ladies and gentlemen, this is Orson Welles. I'm here to remind you for the fourth and final time this year that this program contains strong language, strong thematic content, terrible imitations of Golden Age Hollywood figures, and an unabashed love of the era. It also contains little to none of me. This is the last of our connective tissue between the Ballyhoo and the glory that is my genius. And yet, I will still find a way to insert myself into this episode. You can't get rid of me that easily. But now, for the fourth and final time this year, walk up the steps amid the pouring rain. Knock at the door and then wait in terrifying anticipation before a vampire figure of legend asks you to wipe your feet and then welcomes you into the Bally Boo. <laughs> Yesteryear, Ballyhoo Review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyboo Review. Many great sights await inside this terrifying picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ways to talk about the creepy things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyboo transitions away from the confines of the cozy world of Golden Age Hollywood and delves back into the world of German Expressionism with one of its all-time heavy hitters. For who among us does not remember the thrill of seeing a terrifying visage consisting of only shadow and innovation. It is a tale that will curdle the spine and tingle the soul, and one that will leave you wondering if what you see on the screen is actually real or mere invention by a great artist. That's right, folks. Tonight, the Ballyboo enters the world of F.W. Murnau with a look at his 1922 horror classic, Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror. So see the show and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Orson Welles. As this is a silent film, I shall act as the Benchy for this trailer. Now, as you can imagine in your head, Thomas Hutter getting the request from Nock to go to Count Orlock's castle. His wife, Ellen, looks rather perturbed, like, no, no, don't go. But he does go anyway. We get shots of the Transylvanian landscape. And from there, we finally emerge upon the visage of Count Orlock, and then in a flash, we see a series of Count Orlok's devious behavior. We see the elements of the plague invading Wisborg. We see Nock going crazy in his cell. We see those expressionist shadows that are so beloved in filmgoers' minds. And then as we finally close the curtain on this tease for the audience, we see that shadow of Orlok's hand clutching at Ellen. And there you have it, folks. The trailer for Nosferatu, as described by the Benchy, Orson Welles. And now, back to the program. <laughs> Thank you.
Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the topic of the day. Yes, in 1922, F.W. Murnau unveiled to the world Nosferatu, a symphony of horror, a film that would go on to innovate not just many filmmakers to this very minute, but would also be a defining entry in the beginning of what would become the most media-savvy figure in horror history and pop culture history, Count Dracula. Yet, switching the mere names from Dracula to Orlock and setting scenes in places other than London was not enough for Bram Stoker's widow to resist the temptation of lawsuit upon the filmmakers. And as a result, we are very lucky that this film even exists today. But now that we have the film in front of us, just how has it innovated the ways we look at horror and cinema at large today? Well, to answer that, we need the return of a gentleman whose expertise in Japanese cinema and French cinema is only matched by his beautiful extensive knowledge of german expressionism and today he will be here to answer the question is count orlock really a vampire please welcome to the show henry jarvis hello 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 everybody and let me just say there is nothing more scary than 1920s germany i mean we're, we're, we're getting <laughs> down and dirty with it like, you don't want to hang out we there too long so weimar era germany is easily a scary proposition. We talked about it in in uh, M. Yeah, uh, a few a uh, few months back now. At this point, jeez, I forgot that this is our second time in Germany in this time period. <laughs> so. well, we covered we covered me Fritz Lang. We, we covered me. You remember me, Henry? I I we did two movies of mine. <laughs> the only thing more scary than Germans in the 1920s is vampires. <laughs> so we're really getting into it today. <laughs> so it's Germans in the 1920s, vampires. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump supporters. Gotcha. Gotcha. Gosh, can you imagine a fucking 1920s <laughs> if they, if German film with Trump? If, if they merged. <laughs> so can you if get a face cre- in the crowd, but made in Germany in the 1920s? I would not want to see German Andy Griffith. I think that uh, would be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just his voice, but also German. <laughs> Vada schnapps, yeah. <laughs> Vada schnapps. What you drinking tonight? <laughs> um, but welcome back, Henry. Um, now, uh, this is another of those instances where I ask you politely, will you cover a movie with me? Um, and uh, Rather than you picking one. And you kindly acquiesced to talk about Nosferatu for the Ballyboo. And I, I picked it because we covered Dracula last year. We did... Um, uh, the Bella Lugosi classic and the Spanish version that was made simultaneously. And folks will already have heard at this point uh, James Scully and I talking about Dracula on radio for this year's Ballyboo. Oh, cool. But everything Dracula-related actually starts here cinematically. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, like the, the definition of a cinematic vampire starts with Murnau in Germany with Max Schreck assuming that role. Um it's probably one of the most influential images that I would say matches. I don't know if it supersedes, but it matches the look of Dracula that Lugosi innovated. Yeah. Um, but uh, for the uh, for for the listeners at large, I think it's important that we talk about like how we first saw this film because I'm gonna go off of the assumption mm-hmm. that both of us experienced this film for the first time not in full. We saw clips of this movie first. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess yeah. if you want to get specifics about it, my first interaction with this film was with SpongeBob. 
where yes, <laughs> the Nosferatu yes. character was in SpongeBob, and that's how I became yes. aware of it when I was seven. <laughs> you know, I should I, I mean maybe should I play the clip of that episode? I think I should play the clip in there. You're where more they, than welcome it, to if legally you're allowed to. <laughs> I don't know like, <laughs> what, if you can. Well, well, so. le- legal legalese is something we'll talk about in this yeah, episode. Because so. <laughs> um, I mean, like you said, lawsuits come of this project pretty commonly. So yeah. And yet, somehow, SpongeBob was able to get away with it. <laughs> um, Marine no, time, um, you know. Well, the clip that is the, the clip that we're referring to is actually from an episode of SpongeBob that didn't air um, in the initial run originally. It actually came out on DVD first, mm-hmm. and then they aired it. But it's um, the hash slinging slasher episode, and at the end, it's revealed that the hash slinging slasher that's knocking at the door is actually just some nerd who's wanting an application for a job, and his spatula for a hand is just a spatula covered by his sleeve. But the lights have been flickering on and off at the Krusty Krab, and so they wonder who's been flickering the lights, and they pan over, and it's just a cardboard or a cutout of Nosferatu flipping a light switch yeah. <laughs> and they just go Nosferatu <laughs> and it, it's weird because you actually see Count Orlock smile they they did a Terry Gilliam on it where they just go like, yeah. <laughs> like but now what was the first time you saw the film in full in full I want to say my recollection's a little hazy but I want to say I probably saw it in high school film class uh and then, I mean, and then in college, they didn't, they never showed it. I mean, my, my college didn't show us really any foreign, uh, or any, sorry, any silent films. So I really? had a lot, a lot of my silent knowledge, I basically have sought out on my own terms. And that's, so. well, but that's good independent thinking there. I was fortunate that we saw a lot of silent cinema in our film expression classes. We saw yeah. Sunrise by Murnau. Yeah. Um, and we saw Passion of Jonah Arc uh, by Dreyer. Um, but Nosferatu, I would imagine that I would have needed to take the horror expression class at my school if I wanted to see that on a big screen. Yeah. Um, but Nosferatu, I actually sought that out in high school, same as you. Uh, at the time, it was pretty easy to get a, a, a worn out but watchable copy yeah. like through Internet Archive. Uh, I saw the movie early on in high school like while working in theater. Mm-hmm. And the thing kind of uh, uh, stuck in my brain as this haunting – it's a very haunting film. Yeah. It's not so much – I think that any scare factor from this film has receded into something more unnerving than anything else. I would it's agree. atmospheric. I would agree. Yeah. It's very much a film that you sit with rather than a film that you're, like, on your edge of your seat with. Um, right. And it, it's still – I mean, going back to it, like, I watched it uh, uh, this morning. And it, I mean, it's sh- not shockingly, I guess, but it definitely holds up. Like, it de- like there's a lot of great cinematography in this film. Uh, yeah. Like, that really adds to the atmosphere of it all. That was surprising. I wanted to ask you, how did you yeah. watch uh, it this time around? I watched it through the Kino Lorber Blu-ray. Got it. Um, now, there was some, there, there were things that I found fascinating about that release, because, number one, the score claims to be a Hans Erdmann score. Hmm. However, Hans Erdmann's score was lost, and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go through production, but it's a reconstruction that actually incorporates a lot of um, uh, 
other pieces of music to reconstruct the score in tone. Hmm. But there was actually another score that was done by another restoration team. Um, I think it was uh, James Kessler and Gillian Anderson, and they did um, they did one where they actually wrote music in an Erdman style rather hmm. than trying to adapt other. It's it's the difference between Quentin Tarantino putting out a soundtrack for Inglorious Bastards that has a lot of like outside source music versus him doing the Hateful Eight where he has Ennio Morricone doing the score. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's that's the difference yeah. there. Uh, um but I, I, I but that Blu-ray is is very uh, it looks beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um I I keep wondering if the frame rate is correct because K- Kino's done this thing before where they'll put out uh, different frame rate versions of stuff like Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. But I'm wondering if because of the necessity of reconstructing the print that they had to go at a standard for frame rate in order to uh, in order to properly restore it. And that's because some, some things feel slower than they should in it. And that's what I wanted to really talk about is uh, because how I watched it uh, was I watched it through the Arrow player through uh, Arrow Video streaming service. They had it. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I threw it on that way, but there was also—I mean, like, I, I feel like the score I heard was probably the one you're talking about. That's the recreation that's in that style, because there's yeah. also other stuff. I, I wanted to ask you if you had it in your thing, but with mine, there were a lot of title cards that seemed to be a lot more modern, uh, and like added mm-hmm. like like because like they had like some of the title cards that's like when they're speaking or whatever it would be like uh, oh Ellen like all of those like the old fashioned title cards, but then right. they would throw in a lot of these title cards that were like full monologues using pretty modern language and sometimes mm-hmm. putting it like uh, in the part when they're writing the letter or if he's reading the letter and it, the title card would be in letter format and that kind of thing. I feel like, oh, well, that's not very 1920s. Uh, so well, like, I was wondering well, if you that, had a similar thing and if you knew anything about that. You can cut this so, if this isn't relevant, but. Yeah, no, no, it is relevant. It, it um, Actually, the, the Kino Lorber uh, uh, release has a restoration that for at least for the English intertitles, they each card was recreated in a consistency with the style of what would have been on screen at the time. Interesting. Now you'd think, well, not all of these title cards are going to be this elaborate and detailed. Mm-hmm. However, we've talked about a certain British filmmaker who made a certain movie about uh, uh, two students killing somebody and throwing them into a trunk. Yeah. And his one of his original jobs in Britain was t- designing title cards, and that was interesting. Wow! Think 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 of graphic design. Yeah. In the sense this way, think of graphic design. There there was meticulous detail into this, and uh, folks will have already heard this at this point. But when we were talking about Noah's Ark from 1928, uh, the 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 title cards in there vary. Uh, in terms of style and delivery, huh. especially when you're quoting from the Bible, it gets very calligraphic. Yeah. But then you get to like regular text, and it's it's pretty standard, and it's got the Warner Brothers little yeah. logo at the bottom, going like, "We're not owned by Discovery yet." <laughs> and <laughs> get fucked, Batgirl. <laughs> if you look really closely in uh, in Noah's Ark from 1928, you can see Batgirl in the background. Oh, wow. Oh, that's at least she got some release. Like, Michael Curtiz may have hurt thirty-five people making that flood happen, but he was very progressive. He was very Batgirl progressive, in including Batgirl in the movie. So. <laughs> I want the Batman. Can you get me the Batman? <laughs> no, the Batgirl. The Batgirl okay. shall do. 
Ah, you know, hey, I'm all for the ladies. Um, <laughs> now, no, um, but that, so that title card thing might actually be, it's a matter of also translation. Mm-hmm. It's a matter of, if you're, if we're talking about a silent film from, let's say, the uh, 1920s in America, they're going to have their own title cards. And then when they imp- export the product, they're just going to change out those title cards, right? So the... The thing that I'm aware of in regards to this is that each country had its own graphic design team. Now, once sound hits, that goes out the door. It's yeah. not needed. Now we're needing to learn dubbing. And it's, in the case of Dracula, actually making full-on Spanish-language versions of these films. So in that sense, it actually it's kind of like innovative to watch because this is our first full silent movie. Yeah. Noah's Ark has talking parts in it. This is straight up silent. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's part of that transition era. This comes eight years before or seven years. Sorry. This comes, this comes five years before the jazz singer breaks free and Al Jolson, uh, wins America's heart with terrible blackface. And <laughs> um It was a different uh, time. You can win America's heart by it's also a, it, being very racist at that time. So It's a it's a good movie, but that 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 image will never go, leave my It's a good movie, my but, brain. you know, fucking Birth of a Nation's also a good movie. And but there's yeah. a lot of caveats associated with it. Yeah, movies. there's 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 like 500,000 25,600 caveats. Yeah. Like, of, so. Of like uh so yeah, but but my point being is is that this is our first fully silent film. And it makes talking about the plot interesting because there's no real dialogue that you can riff off of like we yeah. normally do on this show. But there is a way to fully dissect it and i translated a lot of these title cards because they do provide a lot of exposition that is needed and frankly can carry us through a discussion however what i find interesting is is that this is a testing ground for murnau for things he would do later that would strip away Hmm. because there's a lot of title cards in this film there is there's a lot of there there's a consistent use of title cards for dialogue and for uh, transition of scenes in particular because the story roughly translates Stoker uh, and the novel in the form of diary entries. Hmm. Um, but it still does that, and by necessity, title cards are needed to transfer from scene to scene. Yeah. But you also do see in this film him able to blend two different locations through symmetry of emotion and, thema- and thematic detail. Um. But there's a common belief that pure cinema is achieved with the use of little to no title cards. Yeah. Hitchcock believed this. I think it was either Lang or uh, Paul Lenny or uh, one of the people he was working with when he went over to Germany for a minute that – would indicate that that would be the that would be the style to go with if you're wanting to achieve pure cinema because you are seeing people reach this as an art form by the 1920s. Yeah. And to my mind it, a question that I could ask you as a modern film goer but just mm-hmm. a film fan in general um how do I put this? Let's say this film had no title cards whatsoever. Okay. okay. Let's just Let's put that out of our minds. 
can this film work without any title cards? Um, I mean, the cut that I saw was pretty heavy on a lot of title cards. And so it's hard for me to really put myself in the mindset of if you take all of those out, could that work? Because it's, I feel like the cut that I saw, at least, was very reliant on them for a lot of it. Uh, yeah. And so I think there's a, while there is a lot of great uh, like cinematic theming uh, and like how the shots are comprised, uh, I mean, it, like every silent film, you have a lot of like not overacting but very expressionist acting, uh, right? And I think that yeah. helps the film a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know, I don't know if this would work in a modern, if in, in a modern age where if like you put this in like film form or whatever and took out all of the title cards, I don't know if it would work. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because I, I don't think it would work without title cards by the necessity of transition. Yeah. However, I'm tempted to do that. It'd be an interesting experiment because I would like. Yeah, it would be interesting to see, like, just to see if. If the if you can trust the audience enough to get yeah. there, you know. Well, we there's another film that we can always talk about eventually, Vampire by Dreyer. Yeah, I would love to talk about Vampire at some point. Ar- arguably, Vampire achieves that pretty closely because mm-hmm. that's that's mood. That's a mood. Yeah, Vampire is a mood. Yeah. Nosferatu is a is a is a. Uh, Lifestyle, yeah. but yeah. vampire is a mood. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, you I know definitely what I'm get that. <laughs> He's not describing it accurately. <laughs> um, but no, um, we. Uh, but this is this is also the first time we're talking about F. W. Murnau, who is a large looming figure yeah. in German expressionism, Hollywood filmmaking, cinema at large. Um, and it, it, it would it would behoove the Ballyboo if we were to unravel the tale of Friedrich Wilhelm Plumpe. Are you ready, Henry? Are you ready for this? I am ready to learn. All right, all right. So he is born Friedrich Wilhelm Plumpe on December twenty eighth, eighteen eighty eight. A lot of eights and a lot of twos and a lot of ones. That's um, what you would call a cursed date. Which makes sense that he invented vampires. <laughs> so, you know. He didn't. Bram Stoker's widow going like, no, he didn't. No, he fucking didn't, Henry. In case this is your first podcast with just me on it, uh, as a heads up, my form of humor is just being wrong. So, yes. like, that's just how I know this is incorrect. And so. yeah, yeah, and that's why Bram Stoker's widow is going to sue you now. Okay. Again, <laughs> Link. Your Honor, I wish to bring to the court... This young man who assumes that F.W. Murnau created the vampire when my husband clearly created the vampire. Those damn bloodsuckers always trying to bleed me dry. <laughs> oh, you mean vampires? No, yeah. lawsuits. <laughs> no, lawyers. <laughs> no, lawyers. hey hey Anyway. <laughs> who wanted lawyer humor? Um, now, uh... Uh, almost nothing of what Frederick saw in it, the town of his birth, which uh, uh, it was kind of changed around at points. Because, uh, like, so here's the thing: the documentary "Language of Shadows" has Bonhofstrasse as his birth, as his place of birth. Wikipedia and other entries, including TCM and the uh, official website for Murnau, they list him as being from Bielfeld uh, and then living in Kessel by the age of seven. Um, now, those could be all within 
the territory and range. I am not a I, I am I am not a map expert, uh, especially during pre Weimar or Nazi era Germany. Like that's not my I, I didn't go to school. Those for borders that. changed so often then. That like oh yeah, and what's what's interesting is that they just basically said like because of the bombings in World War Two, the places where Murnau grew up, specifically Bonhofstrasse, don't exist anymore because yeah. of heavy heavy bombing. Like the the virtual. The, the the environment is gone and yeah. another comparison to that is William Wyler um uh William Wyler's like whole town was destroyed by the Nazi era like or at least by human population people were decimated obviously yeah. and uh Carl Lemley came from the kingdom of Württemberg which was all but all but decimated yeah and in, in World War it, prior to World War II and actually Lemley spent a lot of his money getting people out yeah. um uh that it, after he the studio was taken away from him by charles rogers um uh and so Murnau though grows up in 1888 in germany times are times are times are a happening you know he's he's got two he's got two stepsisters he's got three brothers one of whom would unfortunately pass away far too young um his uh mother otilly um uh, was uh, his father Henrik's second wife. Heinrich owned a cloth factory in northwest of Germany. Um, and when he's a kid, he's a, uh, a massive reader. Uh, he is engaged in uh, the, a love of acting in the theater, even though his father disapproves of it. He says, this is a cute hobby, but it's not a career. <gasps> And then you hear every teenager in the do- in the world slam their doors. <laughs> I, know, I know, rebellious teens in the early 1900s. Yeah, I can imagine uh, F.W. Murnau listening to My Chemical Romance. I'll go work on the railroad. So. <laughs> go work on the railroad, or as his father wanted him to do, become a teacher. That's, oh. a, that's a more sturdy profession. So he's yeah. not a complete asshole. He's not saying like you got to go work at the coal mine. There's no way you could become yeah. a rocket scientist, <laughs> just like October Sky. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, actually, and the, the his nieces, one of his nieces is interviewed in the documentary, uh, Language of Shadows, and she said that. Uh, the the recollection from his brothers is that he was always reading, never without a book in his hand, and his siblings basically waited on him as he lounged around reading. So it's just like, bring me, bring me a soda pop, yeah. uh, or whatever the equivalent in Germany is, or a lemonade, I guess. Der, uh, bring me der lemonade. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, um, and actually, when they found out about puppetry. They began putting on small puppet plays, and his stepsister Ida was a gifted painter who would help design the sets. So oh, before cool. F.W. Murnau was making live-action films, he was going down this Jim Henson route right here, you know, trying yeah. to make puppet uh, pup, uh, puppet films uh, that contained uh, gratuitous amounts of sex for the era. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's trying to make Happy Time murders before Happy Time murders happens. Um <laughs> Now, when he's in high school, Wilhelm actually tries to recreate the plays he would see, and his brother and his his brother and his brother and his father would construct a large stage for him to achieve this. Even though his father again disapproves of this acting bug, get over it, Wilhelm, and go go become a math teacher. And he's like, "Fuck you, Dad! I'm going to be an actor." on the stage um now there's no more disappointing words to a father than i'm going to be an actor 
(laughs) Either that or I'm going to get into cryptocurrency. One of the two. (laughs) Yeah. It's arguable which one's worse. (laughs) One of them inspires a very, very nasty habit on the internet. And the other one... One of them's cryptocurrency. Yeah. And the the other one just kind of guarantees that you're going to be on some student shoots occasionally and maybe one commercial. Yeah. Um, But uh, uh, now, Mur- the name Murnau is actually lifted from Murnau M. Stafflese, uh, a town near Staffel. I'm sorry if I mispronounced this, but the town is south of Munich. Um, and he changed the name to Murnau from Plumpa in order to avoid his father discovering his acting passions. We talked about the jazz singer. This is kind of like portions of the jazz singer. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, I'm just going to pretend that I'm that I'm a kid dancing. Oh, what's that? My dad's in this performance that I'm giving as a jazz singer with a bunch of other rabbis. And he's like, my son, the shame. <laughs> um, now, he does go to the University of Berlin. Uh, and uh, around that time in 1911, he takes the name Frederick Wilhelm Murnau. Um, and he... Uh, there's a w- the website entry actually says that he took this in memory of the Upper Bavarian Artist Colony, um, which he visited with Arambom Daigle, and this was the town of Murnau am Staffelsee. Um, and it, it seems the name Plumpa was kind of a burden. He kind of sheds that identity for a while. Like, he's in his 20s. By the time he gets to his 30s, he actually tries to reconnect with his family at a certain point. Um and then at the University of Berlin, he studies philology and art history and literature in Heidelberg. Uh, in Heidelberg, uh, he re- he connected with a lot of artists, fellow artists, Franz Marc, Elsie Lasker-Schuller, and Hans Ehrenbaum Degel. Um, now, Hans Ehrenbaum Degel was one of his great friends. He was a poet. Um, and they, they, you know, they, they, they went on that whole kick we all do of just like art forever and bros forever. And like, everybody's, everybody's going to create the best art in the world and they're going to pay us for it because we're geniuses. Your early twenties are a magical period. (laughs) Are they though? Are they? (laughs) It's a delusional period, but it's a magical period. It's, it's like living in the matrix and then if people who want to stay in their 20s stay in the Matrix, people in yeah. their 30s go back to Zion. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, now, at the outbreak of World War One, Murnau did serve. Um, he was drafted into the infantry in 1914 in Potsdam, promoted to lieutenant in 1915. Now, in 1915, tragedy does strike because his old pal Hans, Aaron Baumdegel, dies on the Eastern Front in 1915. And that does send Murnau into a, a depressive state and such. Um, during his time in the war, he tried to keep up with the theater and is in constant correspondence with his acting friend and colleague from the colleagues from the Deutsche Theater, uh, Lothar Muthel, um, who keeps him to date on the cultural life in Berlin. So he's just basically going like, "Yeah, dude, like Max Reinhardt totally nailed that fucking play, bro. It's gonna go all over across the city, yo." Um, I love and- film bro talk in the 1910s. <laughs> the text messages are literally just them like using pigeons to yeah. to, to, to top little notes. L O L. Oh, I love this term. L O L. Now, um, now here comes the real interesting thing. In 1917, 
um, he's captured over Switzerland. Um, now, how does this happen? Well, at a certain point, um, he joined the Imperial German Flying Corps, where he flew missions for two years along the north of France. Um, and his time ended when he's captured in Switzerland. It's not really certain why he was captured. Uh, the website of uh, F.W. Murnau's official like society, the F.W. Now um, uh, Society, that helps with a lot of these restorations of his films, um, it says, for reasons that are unclear... <laughs> Do you we don't think want it's to talk be- about that. <laughs> do, do, we don't talk about... Do, do you think it had to do with the fact that he's from Germany and he flew over Switzerland? Well, I was going to say, him him fighting for the Germans in this time period does not age well. So, It was a different time and a different place, Henry. You do not understand. It doesn't matter because... I can look a lot of things. Henry, but when you're I- actively fighting for the group that would become the Nazis. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> I diverted from that and went to Hollywood. I, F.W. John Malkovich Murnau, <laughs> came to America to escape that nonsense I had left leaning all my life. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, now, uh, per the website, though, he's released from internment on February 19th, 1919. While he's in internment, though, he does continue his passion for... Uh, uh, for the theater, he puts on productions, kind of like James Whale did when he was interred during World War One. But his focus shifts from acting to directing. So it's kind of like Clint Eastwood, where he's just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm tired of pulling out a gun. But say, what if I told other people to pull out a gun? And um, and that's and that's how you become an actor director. Yeah. Um, that's exactly how it happens. Uh, ben Every Affleck. Time. Ben Affleck, <laughs> ben Affleck did the same thing, but instead it was apples instead of. Hey, I'm tired of pulling out apples. Yeah, <laughs> that's my Ben Affleck impersonation. Everyone, <laughs> <laughs> so. hey, I got your number. How do you like them apples? All right, now say it like that, and we'll do it right there. Okay, action. <laughs> um, now he goes back to Germany and reconnects with a lot of his crew and like, and, and along the way he meets a gentleman by the name of Conrad Veit. Um, I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, he's a major Strasser in Casablanca, Henry. So when he, when he shot, you round up the usual suspects. Yeah. Um, (laughs) but he's also, but he's also in the man who laughs, which is the inspiration for the Joker. Um, so, um, he was the Joker before Jared Leto, perfected the joker <laughs> uh, just showing like the fucking like point a point b of him <laughs> and jared leto Conrad, <laughs> so. i was not responsible for this young man from 30 seconds to mars henry i can't wait for the into the joker verse <laughs> film in which we see him <laughs> pop up so. Con- conrad vite has to be recreated like peter cushing from yeah. fucking <laughs> <laughs> do you call it the joker verse or do you call it the laugh verse because technically he's a comedian so hmm. You know, Good you question. call it, yeah, you call it the giggle verse or I'll something. I'll leave that to the professionals. <laughs> so. Oh, wait, well, oh, you mean the ones at DC? I don't think they, um, I don't think they have time to be competent. Well, ever since they deleted fucking Batgirl, clearly we don't have time for the Joker verse anymore. So. <laughs> Todd Phillips is directing the Joker verse and going like, yeah, I, I decided to take all of that goodwill and flush it down the toilet. <laughs> 
Because <laughs> it's metal, just like Gigi Allen. Back to the hangover days. So. You want due date two? I'll give you due date two. <laughs> oh, God, that'd be a great follow-up for him. Due, due date two, but instead of Robert Downey Jr., it's Conrad Veidt. Why not? <laughs> At this point, it doesn't matter. Now, um, now... Uh, now he starts getting into film. He starts editing propaganda films, essentially, and cutting those. Then he gets his first directorial gig with *The Boy in Blue*, um, and there's uh, there's kind of like an on. Conf- I-, I wasn't able to fully confirm this, but Ernst Co- Ernst Hoffman and Conrad Veidt introduce him to film, um, and there was reports that the the studio that was built was via him and Conrad Veidt, so they kind of teamed up to do this. Um, now, following his debut, he establishes himself as a gifted talent who would blend and blur the lines between reality and fantasy with films like Longing, The Hug It On, and The Dancer, Evening, Night, Morning, Walk Into Night, and Maritza Called the Smuggler Madonna. Uh, so he builds an established reputation for himself. But now we're about to get into Nosferatu. And in order to get into Nosferatu, I think it only... Uh, would it would only be appropriate if we read from our favorite book here every time we do the Ballyboo, The Monster Show by David J. Skull. And you better believe he's got a story to tell. <laughs> so um, uh, we're gonna we're gonna start right off of his book from page forty eight here. Uh, in 1921, there appeared in Germany a startling new horror icon for which, in the first time in cinema, bluntly superimposed the human and the animal to create the image of the overwhelming dread. Alban Grau, a German painter and architect, and according to film historian Lot H. Eisner, a dedicated occultist, seems to have more to do with the overall conception of Nosferatu than did Murnau, though his screen credit is only for d- decor or art direction. Grau published an essay called Vampires in the German publication Bund und Film and around the time of the film's release. Rather than discuss the production of the film, he presented his recollections quite possibly embellished of a wartime incident in Serbia. In the story, Grau and four other companions in need of delousing take up a war against potential typhoid, hair clippers replacing more conventional weapons. One of the group, a Romanian, relates a true story of vampirism. His own father, who died of a heart attack while cutting trees in the Balkans, was buried without the benediction of a priest. The grave was subsequently found to be empty at night, its inhabitant an undead or vampire. The teller produces a yellowing official document attesting to the incident and describing the destruction of the father monster by staking and incineration. That night, Grau wrote, we didn't sleep a wink. Years have passed since the war. One no longer sees the terror of battle in men's eyes. Suffering and grief have shaken men's hearts and have little by little suspended their desire to understand the cause of the monstrous events that depleted the world like a cosmic vampire drinking the blood of millions. Now that's something you want to embroider on a pillow. 
Uh, <laughs> I would agree. It's yeah. up there with live, laugh, love. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> you know, you want a good Halloween pillow that's just not, hey, boo, but it's B-O-O, and there's a ghost at the end of it. This is what you get here. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, now, Alban Grau is an interesting figure. Um People, well, I mean, obviously, I I made the joke about F.W. Murnau being John Malkovich. There is the movie Shadow of the Vampire from 1999. Um, Alban Grau is a character in that movie. He's played by Udo Kier. But that film, and I think that that film might be a lot of people's gateway into the supposed making of Nosferatu. So we'll, we'll tread lightly here. But Alban Grau is just as big a force in the story of Nosferatu as... Uh, F.W. Murnau, and in fact is a lot more centralized and focused on this concept than Murnau. Um, now, for for people to get a background sense, prior to this, he was doing he was doing advertising and design work for the promotional materials for Murnau's film Journey Into Night, and he was fascinated by Murnau's sensibility and artistic creativity in which he applied to express his vision. In fact, the paintings of Caspar David Friedrich uh, inspired Murnau on Journey, which Albin could relate to because those paintings tied in with his obsession with the occult. Grau was the master of the chair, or the head of, the Pansophic Lodge in Berlin. He also had connections to the OTO, the Oriental Order of the Knights Templar. Um, he had connections to the Oriental Order of the Knights Templar, and he knew Aleister Crowley personally. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, quite a resume for somebody who's wanting to get into the occult. Is like, yeah, I know the actual dude that Ozzy Osbourne wrote a song about. Now, here comes the fun part. So he forms a company called Prana Film with Enrico Diekman, uh, and it was a studio designed to specialize in producing occult and supernatural-themed films. Um, Prana was originally a theosophical magazine that appeared in Germany for follows, followers of theosophy. Um, in the documentary, they hold up a purple-bound volume that has issues from 1910 to 1911. But for eight years, it served as a an occult uh, an occult magazine, essentially. And Prana also served as the distributor for occult literature and the sale of incense sticks, candles, and other occult materials. <laughs> Uh, so they ran the gamut and they made it an industry back then before hot topic was around this you, you went through prana right here if you wanted to get your tim burton t-shirts you went through prana you didn't go through well i guess in that day it's not tim burton t-shirts it's just dr caligari t-shirts <laughs> yeah. um now growl growl off of journey in tonight offers Murnau the chance to direct nosferatu to which john malkovich said i will absolutely do it and i will make it perfect um <laughs> Um, now, Grau drew the graphic design for each scene. These sketches are seemingly followed very closely by Murnau. The design of this film is designed off of these sketches, and these sketches are sourced from artists like Hugo Steiner Prague and his illustrations for Gustav Myrek's novel, Golem. So they're carrying prior influence already. Like everybody's influenced by the other one that you see, even though they're innovating, they're still drawing off of it, but it's paintings rather than film. So it's, it's not what we live in today necessarily where you make a movie based off of a painting. You're making a movie because you've seen a couple other movies and you want to combine those themes or that visual style. Um, now they tap screenwriter Henrik Galeen uh, to pen the film, despite the fact that the film's rights from the Stoker estate were not obtained in advance. So, um, uh, and uh, his specialty 
in Dark Romanticism came in handy because he had worked on films like The Student of Prague and Der Golem, um, which is one of the most influential German Expressionism films, especially when it comes to Frankenstein. Um, arguably, the the Golem has a lot of uh, of of seeds that carry that Frankenstein would carry to fruition. Um, now, what does Galen do with this script? He mainly reworks it so that they can get around Stoker. Uh, the additions and alliteration alterations. I'm sorry. The additions and alterations were such to set the film in Germany in the harbor town of Wisborg, or Weiborg, um, and the idea of Orlock bringing the plague to Weiborg, all of the rats on the ship, and eliminating the Van Helsing character in favor of this Professor Bulwer character, who we'll talk about in a little bit, because he's pretty fucking useless. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, at this point, you're trying to get an adaptation off the bat. Now we we live in a weird world where nobody tries to do this anymore on the grand scale of Hollywood. Nobody's yeah. making an uh nobody's making a bootleg Iron Man movie called well, actually Asylum might be doing that. I take that back. I think Mockbusters <laughs> yeah. never discount Asylum. They're no, always never. around. Yes. So. But but to compare Nosferatu to Asylum is is like comparing uh, i i don't know it's like comparing Be careful Ooh. because in a hundred years from now we might look back on asylum as the innovators of cinema <laughs> so i'm 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 glad i'll be dead <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine uh, I, 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 like mega uh, Megamorphers instead of Transformers is the innovation point for all franchise films going forward. Listen, Michael all Bay- I'm going to say is I think it's very possible that in 50 years, Michael Bay's reputation will be so tarnished that we look back on Megamorphers as the best film of the 2008s. So. <laughs> Sharknado also. Sharknado... Hey. Sharknado will get posthumous Oscars or, or uh, after-the-fact Oscars for best picture... Um, it will. It will also unite the country. <laughs> Eat your heart out, Coda. You're no Sharknado. So. <laughs> hey, hey, Jaws, take a step aside because you're not a Sharknado. <laughs> Steven Spielberg never made a weird sex comp, sex comedy in the I early mean, 2010s, and so it's hard to really appreciate him. Well, uh, to be fair, he didn't have Seth Rogen in his back pocket then. Now he does fair. with the Fablemans, you know? Fair. You need Seth Rogen. You can't do it without Seth Rogen. I think that's the best case scenario for both Seth Rogen and Steven Spielberg is for the both of them to make an asylum <laughs> film next year. So. <laughs> a silent film or an asylum film? An asylum film. Ooh, a silent oh. asylum. <laughs> I'm just imagining Seth Rogen in a silent film laughing. He's doing his... <laughs> but it's The title card then goes, Vagina! <laughs> um, now, uh, but let's, let's, let's go back to the monster show for a second, too, because he... Skull got a lot out of this. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the... Uh, 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 a little bit of like the history of Murnau with horror prior to this. The previous year, Murnau had cut his teeth on horror themes with a similarly unauthorized version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So he's done this before <laughs> uh, called uh, Der Hanniskopf or the Hand- head of Janus. 
Um, it's a now lost film that starred Conrad Veidt and in a supporting role, Bela Lugosi. <laughs> if there is a conversation about vampires, you better believe Ooh. I'm going to be there. <laughs> I, Bela Lugosi, cannot leave this fucking character ever. <laughs> Dracula never dies. <laughs> um, now, at least one account of Derhaniskov suggests that the film was suppressed by the Robert Louis, Robert Louis Stevenson estate. An examination by this author of the British Society of Authors Archives dealings with dramatic rights for Jekyll and Hyde revealed no mention of a German controversy. The Society of Authors did, however, vigorously pursue Florence Stoker's case against Nosferatu. More on that later. Um, but yeah, so he's done this before, and it seems like this is a common thread of just like, well, we can't get the rights to the book. We'll just change a few things. Uh, well, Dracula is not Dracula. He's Count Orlock, um, and they are going to Wisborg, not London, and uh, say there's a plague of rats. So... <laughs> It's a perfect way to get around this stuff. Um, now, the production commences in July of 1921, starting with exterior shots of Weimar, uh, Wismar, or Weimar. I think it's Weismar. Wismar, Weimar. This is Zach fucks up German towns today. This is what it, this is. Um, the shots overlooking Weiborg. Uh, <laughs> the shots overlooking Wismar. <laughs> the, shot, uh, the shots overlooking Wismar are actually from the. Merian Kirch Tower overlooking the Weimar marketplace. Um, there's other locations, such as the Wasator, uh, the Heligen Geist Kirsch Yard and Harbor, uh, Lubeck. In fact, in Lubeck, there's a series of six build, brick buildings known as the Saltspeicher or the Salt Warehouses, and those became Orlock's home when he comes to Wisborg. Um, the Depenau. Street served as the location for the procession of coffins with the plague carriers, which is very, very unsettling to look at. Was <laughs> they're coming down the coffins? We'll talk about it. Uh, there's other locations for exteriors in Lorenburg, Rostock, and Silt. The Transylvanian exteriors, though, were shot in Slovakia, with locations including the High Tatras Mountains, um, uh, the Veranta Dolina, uh, the Orova Castle, uh, which is Orlok's castle, the Va River. And the Starry Harad Castle, which is an additional like exterior, that decaying, crumbling exterior that goes on top of the mountain, that's that castle. Uh, the interiors were primarily shot at Yofa Studios. Yofa Studios, I found interesting. I wanted to look more into this. They were founded in 1920 on a former airfield site, um, JOFA Studios, by the way. Um, and uh, it was at the center of film production during the Weimar era and the Nazi era. Um, they became the base for Toby's films at the dawn of sound in 1929. And then the studio fell into Soviet territory at the end of World War II, and that became more of a use towards East German television and dubbing German releases of foreign films. So an American wow. film would be coming through Yofa at the time. That's very um, interesting. Wow. Yeah. So this, so the studio, like it seems like some of these studios go away at a certain point. This one, they just kept the facility, but like Yofa itself and what it stood for doesn't exist anymore. Um, huh. uh, which uh, and now, there, we're talking about working in various locations. Silent film allowed this in a way that when sound film came in, this wasn't ready for about twenty years. Yeah. 
or like 15 years. Like I always use the example of Treasure of the Sierra Madre as the moment when people really start going out on location because Houston took them all the way to Mexico um, and then came back. So like Houston took them out on location and then finished up in the studio. And I think it's to the benefit that we get to see how on location filming worked back then because they're kind of blessed with not having sound. We've been on location shoots before where sound is the primary nightmare in an otherwise beautiful aesthetic. Um, uh, On the last short film uh, I worked on, we literally had a buzzsaw going off in what was otherwise a tranquil creek, uh, something that Henry and I both had to suss out how to remove. (laughs) Um, There's nothing more tranquil than a buzzsaw. <laughs> well, Leatherface would agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, um, Murnau, uh, in addition to capturing these beautiful sceneries all across Europe, um, he's also a very meticulous director, like a Hitchcock, but he also takes it to some extremes. Uh, Murnau prepared and timed the scenes carefully. Um, per Frida Graffa's book, uh, Lights from Berlin, uh, she uh, notes that he made use of the book notes. It made use of sketches to translate these direct frames of the film. And Murnau would utilize a metronome. He controlled um, the pace of his actors that way. So you're using a metronome to control their, their timing and their movement, which, you know, speaking, we've both directed films where we've had silent moments where people are just reacting to things. Yeah. And I must confess that I have done, not the metronome, but I have done that thing of trying to control their performance as they're um, in a silent scene where there's no dialogue. Um, if they're having to express something like crying or an emotional look, I give beats in between my direction so that I have something to work with in the sound realm. But this is this is a a benefit that sound does not give you you can't have a metronome to pace the timing like that and make it move like a symphony because this movie is called a symphony of horror and it does move like a symphony it has its it has the movements of a symphony contained within it um and uh, i I, i'm curious from your perspective henry like given what we know about filmmaking today would you would you clamor for that kind of freedom to not have to worry about sound in that respect or is it or is are we so ingrained in sound that we just we 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 look at this as a as a novelty more than anything else well i will say that so i will say this you and i both have experience working as a sound technician uh in film and so and with that comes a s- specific privilege that comes specifically with uh, people who work in sound on film, that no one else understands how powerful sound is in film, and like how powerful sound effects, how powerful dialogue, and and how the dialogue is heard, and how the atmosphere is built, how powerful that is to film. That you really don't understand until you're really getting the nitty gritty of it, because the the point of sound work is to not be noticed, uh, and it's so you sim- have it's, to. It- and sorry, it's similar to directors. Yeah, I would I would argue. Yeah, it's very similar. Except the prestige is much lower. And so like, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and so I would say that like, I would love to explore making a silent film at some point uh, because there is a lot of, and I think it's something that a lot of directors who are not fluent in sound work 
uh, think about where it'd be interesting to strip away that almost support system that sound allows to make a very interesting silent film where you have to do all these kinds of things without the benefit and the padding of sound. Uh, so I would love to make a silent film at some point. However, it's a challenge. You have to, because we are where we are now with sound, with the sound industry in terms of filmmaking, it adds and, I mean, it's one of the pillars of filmmaking, of filmmaking yeah. at this point, where it's like, if you take away sound, you have to rework the entire structure and the entire philosophy of modern filmmaking. Your script uh, is cut. Your script is cut virtually in half. Yeah, exactly. Um, you are you are relegated to pantomime, but there is a way to make silent film acting because we, in a lot of ways, you have to focus on actors. Yeah. primarily when it comes yeah. to this. Yeah, subtlety requires talent when yeah. you're doing that. It's easy to make a silent film if you're trying to do something broad. Because yeah. it's not hard to tell somebody to overexpress or to play to the rafters with yeah. your with your body. Yeah. To achieve subtlety, which I would I would argue that Murnau achieves in this because this is not Max Shrek, the the performer playing Count Orlock, he's terrifying with just a look. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the it has zero to do with the fact that he is uh, like raising his arms like this and whatnot. Yeah. If anything, it's actually the shadows of his arms moving that are creepier than him on screen itself. And that's achieved through pure visual that has nothing to do with sound, more or less. Unless you're trying to add a component that, like when, his, when the shadow goes up over Ellen, you have some kind of like weird effect going on that way. Yeah. So like I I get what you're saying like we have a pillar of the industry here but for the supposition's sake it would be it, I I agree it would be interesting there's 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 a part of me that wants to try that in a Tati aesthetic because of what yeah. we've been doing with Tati. It, I and, mean it's one of those if you're a if, if you're listening to this and you are 16 17 or whatever and you are a filmmaker, you are a director, you're a writer, you're an actor, whatever make a silent film because mm -hmm. it really it really defines you know a lot of the other aspects that you don't realize mesh together and it's it's it, it's it's a film school staple it's a silent staple it you need to make a silent film at some point just to understand the mechanics of everything yeah there's a i did that in the first year of film school we made a silent film i made a, a film about somebody being laid off yeah. and we primarily focused on visual aesthetic of a worn out building in downtown denver yeah. that was clearly used to be a factory and the main emotions were disappointment and the crumpling of a pink slip and then getting into a car and driving off yeah and that's all the basic tools you need L L murnau proves not just in this film but other films of his that the emotion that you're looking for that we usually feel in dialogue or actory monologues or even broad action with sound effects adding to it you strip that all away you can still be an effective filmmaker and arguably given the fact that murnau is using like a metronome and timing these things out in careful precision it's training ground for you to communicate to your actors in advance because if you learn how to do it in the moment, you start building an arsenal of how to communicate or figuring out where your comfort lies as a director yeah. because nobody can teach you how to be a director. We can't do that here. We're not 
we're not about to do that. Directing is an inherent talent that comes from observation. You can learn how to do it, but ultimately your style cannot be learned. Your style has to be acquired through your own personal experience. Murnau has a different uh, execution of style than Lang does or Lubitsch does um, or D.W. Griffith even. You know, each of these or, or, um, uh, or any silent filmmaker um, of the era uh, of the era. Eric von Stroheim has a different style. It's usually just making way too much of a movie and wasting a lot of money. Um, <laughs> that's a talent. That's a talent right there. <laughs> yeah. I want an eight-hour movie. What? I can't have that? Fuck you, people. <laughs> I want a movie that takes up everyone's entire day. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Martin Scorsese was smart. He was just like, no, I only need three and a half hours. <laughs> James I'm Cameron's push like, it, but I'm not going to demand it. Yeah, so. exactly. James Cameron will push it. He's like, no, I want five fucking hours of you watching Blue Cats. <laughs> James Cameron can do whatever he wants. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody's been saying that lately. It's just like, are you guys forgetting that? <laughs> Avatar 2 cannot I, I I doubt it's going to succeed as much as that first one did. It, Are you it forgetting about the billions of dollars that James Cameron <laughs> has made? Like, you can say whatever you want but the moment that multiple billions are brought into the conversation I, I you can do whatever you want. I, lo I love the notion of all the Marvel records being blown away by Avatar The Way of Water. I think that would be an ultimate yeah, fuck like, you to Marvel. <laughs> yeah, Fuck the entire world. Fuck it. Blue space cats are the greatest thing to have ever been put on film. <laughs> Gone with the wind can suck it. It's blue cats <laughs> in space. Who's Clark Gable? I only know Jake <laughs> Sully. <so. laughs> Who's Vivian Lee? I only I only know about Giovanni Rabisi. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Giovanni Rabisi, bigger than Vivian Lee. <laughs> <laughs> one has an Oscar and the other doesn't. And it's just an example of injustice in this world. <laughs> one has an Oscar and the other has multiple billions of dollars. And he so... was in and he was the bad guy in Ted. Can well, you, there you go. <laughs> He the does a weird now, old man. So. <laughs> he was in boiler room. What did Vivian Lee ever do? <laughs> Besides uh, die so. <laughs> well mary lawrence olivier too and <laughs> did other shit she was a great actress but now um now here's the thing though the budget was actually pretty tight on this film uh so fritz arno wagner um was only permitted one camera <laughs> okay um so thus the original uh negative there's only one copy of the original negative which would complicate this whole ma matter afterwards um now, uh, Lot H. Eisner uh, from uh, a 1967 book called Murnau, the classic of German film, uh, relates that while Murnau followed Galeen's script to the letter, he rewrote 12 pages. And this is confirmed by the fact that in Murnau's working script, the text of Galeen is nowhere to be found. The pages in question concern Orlok's demise. Um, and since the script... Um, since Vampires Dying in Daylight neither appears in Stoker's work or in Galeen's script, this concept has been solely attributed to Murnau. Um, now, I find that interesting because I do recall Dracula's sunlight thing being a factor. Um, but that could be something that literally comes out of 
the evolution of this. Um, and now, at this point, I think we need to just jump into this film because we've we've bandied about enough. Um, it's time to talk about Nosferatu, a symphony of horror. We open up with a title card, and it's an account of the great death in Wisborg, uh, Anno Domine, 1838. Nosferatu, does this word not sound like the death bird calling your name at midnight? Where are you never say it? For them in the pictures of life you will fade into shadows. Haunting dreams will climb forth from your heart and feed on your blood. I have reflected at length on the origin and passing of the great death in my hometown of Wisborg. Here it is here is the story. Once in Wisborg lived a man named Hutter and his young wife Ellen. So we are treated to Hutter rather than Harker. So they're already changing names essentially. And rather than Mina, it's Ellen. Um, so we're already kind of fiddling around with the mythology. Uh, we see Hutter going about his day. Uh, we see Ellen teasing a cat, to which I'm convinced that's why her fate is sealed by the end of the movie, because she fucked with that cat. <laughs> Listen, you don't fuck with cats. No, you don't cats fuck with cats. Cats have a connection to the dark world, and they the, will fuck you up if you even wrong them. I think after that cat was teased by Ellen, he sent a, a telegraph message to Count Orlock, and Orlock was just like, I shall avenge you. <laughs> it was a deleted scene, but it definitely existed. It's a cat. <laughs> Murnau directing a cat with a metronome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, your paw is hitting the telegraph. Tick, tick. Tick, tick, tick. Tick, tick. Tick away, cat. Your fate is in your hands. Make Ellen pay for her sins. <laughs> <laughs> um now um we uh we get Hutter like heading off to his real estate office that he works with. He is employed by a man named Knock. Uh this man Knock uh is already the 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 one of the title cards says he already has rumors circulating around him, but he knows how to pay well. So <laughs> it's just it's like it's like working at any place. You're just like, yeah, I heard the boss is an asshole, but the money, man. Man, just so wonderful. Um, and he knock announces Carla uh, knock at, n announces to uh, uh, Hutter Count Orlock, his grace from Transylvania, wishes to purchase a nice house in our little town. So he gets Hutter to go to Transylvania to make the purchase. And Hutter is a little bit. <laughs> it seems like Hutter is not incredibly hesitant to take this offer. So. One of the benefits that Nosferatu has, as opposed to Dracula, is we actually get sections of Stoker's novel where we are learning the origin of, like, well, how does Harker, rather than Renfield and Dracula, how does Harker get to Transylvania? Why is he brought there? And uh, Nock uh, tells Hutter to sell the house across from his, uh, so... Already things are starting to sound a little strange, but Hutter's just kind of like, well, I guess I'm going to do this. This is my job. Like, I'm not going to ask the question as to why he needs the house across from mine specifically, <laughs> but, but it's going to become clear because of who Orlock wants to go after. Um, uh, and he, uh, Nock actually, he tempts Hutter with the high pay. He goes like, you might have to go to a bit of trouble, a little sweat, and maybe dot, 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 a little blood, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> so Nock is already being um, consumed and controlled 
by Orlock at this point. It's already a connective tissue. Um, and he literally tells him after uh, giving him all the instructions, he goes, have a good trip, my young friend, to the land of phantoms. <laughs> and he goes back to Ellen and says, I must travel to the land of phantoms and thieves. And <laughs> Ellen looks despondent because if I heard that statement, I'd be despondent too. <laughs> If you told me I'm off to the land of phantoms and thieves, I'd be like, what does that mean? <laughs> Calm down. Zach, I have some bad news. I'm going to be moving to the land of phantoms and thieves. Henry, uh, but what does that mean? <laughs> I will be either A, a phantom, or B, a thief. Those are the two options for the land of phantoms and thieves. So There's no option in catering or retail establishments there? I'll be working as an employee of Gap at the <laughs> land of, of phantoms and thieves. So Welcome to Gap at the corner of Phantom and Thief. How can I help you? <laughs> What's that? Count Orlock? You need a pair of jeans? All right. What size? Oh, ghosts don't have legs? All right. Oh, no. Vamp, <laughs> so. vamp, vampires have a third leg? I'm sorry. We can't We can't provide three legs. No, we don't have any three-legged pants. And, <laughs> no, and, 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 so. no, the, and no, the genes don't uh, transform as you transform into a bat. I'm sorry, Orlock. That's just the way things are we here. We don't at have the bat pants. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. If we can't get pants made for the Incredible Hulk, what makes you think we can make shit for you? It's a union issue, even in the land of phantoms and thieves. We have unions. So. The, the, the magic gene union is, 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 has heavy demands on early Germany in the 20s. Now, so he goes off. He travels down the Carpathian Mountains, and we all know the story. He goes up. Uh, among the rugged peaks among the Borgo Pass are found bygone castles of a long age. And uh, he goes to an inn, and he goes, quickly bringing my dinner. I'm off to Count Orlock's house. <laughs> and then the villagers are just like, no like they're obviously scared already um they compel him to stay at the inn overnight as there are werewolves out at night and we get this footage of a wolf or a hyena or something which is conceivably supposed to be orlock transformed um and the animals running around in terror horses run off and this hyena kind of just stares around going like just just it's kind of just there and um uh, Hutter is compelled to stay at the inn by the villagers overnight, and he picks a book off of the shelf called A Vampire's Terrible Phantoms and the Seven Deadly Sins, um, which was the original title for 3,000 Years of Longing, I believe. <laughs> they just had to shorten it down a little bit. <laughs> And uh, it's a great title for a children's book series that WB can cash in on. It's like not Harry. It's Harry Potter and the of vampires, terrible phantoms and the seven deadly sins. You've got three different, three different Harry Potter titles, Harry Potter and the vampires, Harry Potter and the terrible phantoms. And the crossover (laughs) for the ages. Yeah. Fantastic beasts and where to find them is not working. (laughs) <laughs> Let's just get that we right out there. to whatever the fuck this is. Harry Potter, so. Harry Potter and the Seven Deadly Sins. You can make up for all that time you insulted Christians, I guess. I, I want to see Harry Potter tackle lust. Let's see that. <laughs> it's, it's just Harry Potter and Seven. <laughs> no, no, no. This is Count Orlock's game now. <laughs> 
he has the upper hand. <laughs> Quick, to Transylvania, Brad Pitt. <laughs> Keeping in mind in this universe, Morgan, Freeman, Morgan Freeman's playing Harry Potter. <laughs> um, now, in the book, though, it has, it has this text. From the seed of... Belial sprang vampire Nosferatu, who liveth and feedeth on human blood. Uh, and the, in the title cards, it's spelled B-L-O-O-D-E. So that's an interesting spelling. Hmm. This, hun- this unholy creature liveth in sinister caves, tombs, and coffins, which are filled with cursed dirt from the fields of the Black Death. So a great way to relax at night. <laughs> a great way to relax at night. That's how Rob Zombie blows himself to sleep. <laughs> it's a lullaby. It's a lullaby and this book. Um, yeah. now he tosses the book and just goes like, ah, this is garbage. It doesn't mean anything. I'm, I'm, I'm a real estate man. I am not a superstitious man. Um, and then the next morning, the horses frolic back into the fields um, with someone chasing them down. So things are seemingly back to normal during the day. Hutter laughs at the book and then tosses it to the ground. He's just like, vampires, who the fuck needs it? But yet he has hold, he does end up holding on to it. Um, uh, and a horse-drawn carriage uh, helps him begin his ascent to the Carpathian ma- Mountains, and they urge it on faster. And we get this beautiful, sprawling imagery of the landscapes and the mountains that they're filming on in Slovakia. It is beautiful looking. It is absolutely gorgeous to look at this yeah. footage. My girlfriend walked in 15 minutes after this movie, or like 10 minutes after the movie had started, and she got around to this scene, and she's like, this looked pretty. Like, And it's just like, yeah, it does. Like, This is kind of like the beauty of on-film location, and the quality of the print on Kino is 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 good enough to where like you are seeing some detail in it. Yeah. The film is faded, but you can see the detail of this this area in Slovakia that I can't imagine had a film industry come through it for many years afterwards. Uh, yeah. Like it would have been easily another fifty years. I mean, well, let's um, let's be honest. What film industry exists in Slovakia today? Well, like think about it. There are European countries like Albania no, and other ones. Of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. There are other, are other European countries that have a, a burgeoning film industry. Uh, to uh, like Lloyd Kaufman just filmed hashtag yeah. Shakespeare Shitstorm, uh, yeah. I believe in Albania, like that because it was it ended up becoming part of a a collective with a desire to build a film industry out yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, but so like, it does exist. People will go to those places, but it doesn't have an yeah, industry total, like New Mexico yeah, or totally, Georgia. Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so like, I. Uh, but then the 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 carriages urged on faster and faster, um, and the outdoors are perfectly captured under his lens. Um, there's tranquility with urgency, is what I wrote as a note. Like it's it's mm. like this is a calm place, but they're in a fucking hurry because it's going to get dark soon, yeah. and we can't deal with vampires. And, uh, and <laughs> I don't know who that character was. <laughs> I'm just here. Classic Slovakia. <laughs> so I'm from Slovakia, <laughs> the the Dallas region. <laughs> um, and the coachman stops and goes, "Pay what you will. We stop here." And he's just like, "Get the fuck out of my carriage, bro. There's vampires afoot." And um, Hutter re- resumes on foot after laughing at the driver's fears over what will pass. Um, and, uh, you know, like it, it, I, the only thing that I could do after seeing 
Hutter's reaction to it and like laughing at their superstition. I just thought about Bruce Wayne going like Transylvanians are a cowardly and superstitious lot. If only they were scared by something, wonder what it could be a Batman, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) um, and the title card goes, as soon as Hutter crosses the bridge, he is seized by the eerie visions. He so often told me of, uh, then that epic shot from below of Orlock's castle appears. And it is beautiful. And we get the Count disguised as the coachman picking him up to take him to the castle. It's that classic trick where Dracula is going like, I'm going to put on a jacket and nobody will know it's me. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, because put the, put the hood up. Um, uh, so you, you can imagine Willem Dafoe just going like, get in my carriage. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I, I swear you can trust me. What am I, some kind of green goblin? Um, and... Uh, now the count uh, dashes off, and we get this exposed negative. Did you get this in your print as well? I don't think so. So, like, there's a in the in the Kino Lorber print. I couldn't remember if this is like a genuine part of the film or not. But at one point, just before he arrives and gets off of the carriage, there's a shot through the forest that looks like it's an exposed negative, or like a like huh. a it's a it's a um you're you're playing with the unexposed um. You're you're playing with the exposed negative rather than like the finished negative, so oh, like I don't it's think I got it's that. Yeah. it's in, it's inside out essentially. I don't know yeah. if my terminology is correct. It's a yeah. it's a technology that Jack Warner used rather speciously to claim that he had the first all African American cast in a movie in the early <laughs> 1910s. So <laughs> okay, <laughs> you know, and they use but they do also use the same effect at the beginning of the coconuts from 1929 uh, to do the opening credit sequence. Like it's a, it's an exposed negative. Yeah. So, um, so the, uh, uh, they are. He arrives at the castle, and the coachman drives off, and he goes, don't worry, I'll be back later, but you won't know that. And Orlok appears out of this tunnel leading to the castle. Uh, it's unnerving. Like, how would you... Like, actually, Henry, how would you describe Orlok's movement in this film? To me, it, to me, it's kind of like a phantom literally gliding. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of that. It reminds me of... Uh, I mean... This film is an. I mean, I, I was telling my girlfriend about it. It's, it's a perfect example of like silent film acting, of like you have to you know make up for the lack of dialogue and you have to kind of be bigger. And I feel like how he kind of does it is kind of in a way of, well, I'm going to be as unsettling as possible. <laughs> like I'm gonna, I want people to look at me and be like, I'm gonna leave. <laughs> so like that's kind of how I would describe it. What if I had the appeal of Gary Busey sitting out in the sun too long, but sexy. I transformed that into a vampire? Ooh, <laughs> even sexier. <laughs> what if I looked like a certain actor from the New York scene who will end up becoming the first Marvel supervillain of merit? <laughs> that isn't that isn't Ian McKellen. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants leather? (laughs) (laughs) What if, okay, I'll just ask it. What if I look like what Willem Dafoe will become when he's 80? Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) This is the problem with Willem Dafoe being in Shadow of the Vampire is he's basically given me a look at what he might look like at the age of 80. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
I don't understand. Why is everybody making fun of me? <laughs> Why do they keep calling me Orlock? Oh. Oh. Uh-oh. Oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> um, so um, uh, Orlock uh, appears out of that tunnel, and Orlock goes, do you have to keep me waiting? To, uh, you have kept uh, he Orlock goes... Sorry, Orlock goes, you have kept me waiting too long. It's almost midnight. The servants are asleep. So he's a demanding count. He's not as cordial as Count Dracula. He's a he's like a grump. He's just like, the fuck are you doing here two hours late? Get the fuck inside. Let's sign this fucking paperwork. I want to go to fucking Wisborg. And, <laughs> and uh, then it says end of act one. And then Orlock peruses the deed while Hutter eats. Um... That, and then there's this cool skeleton clock that actually... I want uh, that skeleton clock in my goddamn foyer. I said to my girlfriend, we're making this or we're buying it. One of the two. Like, it's not it's not one way or the other. It's going to happen in this house. We will this in some form. I don't care if I have to quit any job I have to focus entire points of my life of making this fucking clock. It's a cool-ass skeleton clock. This is your sled at the end of fucking... Skeleton clock crash. <laughs> what did skeleton clock mean? Is it a metaphor for his life and his relationships with people? No, it's just a fucking skeleton it's clock. It's a skeleton clock. It's cool as fuck. And and, <laughs> and 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 I'm now Ramon. Throw that junk in the fire. <laughs> you just see the skeleton clock still ticking away as the flame consumes it, and then the outside of my version of Xanadu, which is yeah. just a ref- which is just a refrigerator box in an alley. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's where I'll end up. Um, and he, um, as he's eating, he hurts himself. And the title card goes, you hurt yourself, the precious blood. <laughs> like, this is not subtle. The yeah. title cards are not subtle. The acting no. is subtle. The title cards are not. Like, Orlok's just like, the precious blood. Not that I care about such things. After all, I'm just a simple uh, man of real estate and not necessarily a vampire. Customer. I'm not obsessed with blood. But now that you've brought blood up, (laughs) let me tell you about how precious I think it is with this with this diorama that I created out of mache paper and skeletons. Now, um, now uh, there's a and and there is a there is a note that my girlfriend had. Uh, We were looking at the dining room scene and she said, what kind of chair is that? The chair is super long. Now, something in German expressionism that pops up in the early 20s specifically, is elaborate set design utilizing uh, and uh, like either older established furniture or creating new ones. This one looks like it was actually built for the set to be an expressionist kind of look and mood about it, like to, to add to the frame. Yeah. Like this chair looks too odd for its own good. Yeah. Um, but it does add to the scene along with everything else that's going on and what Murno's telling on a visual spectrum. Like, it, it, it is uneasy. Everything from set design on down to the language of the shadows that the cameraman is operating with is meant to put you in unease. It is not meant to comfort you. And I think that that's a key factor when talking about the art direction. And Alban Grau, if you look at the designs that he does for journey into night or looking at the sketches and whatnot, he's clearly wanting to unsettle people with his designs. So it makes perfect sense that these chairs look like that. So trying to explain that to somebody who isn't immersed in German expressionism is like trying to 
bite-size an entire artistic movement, which can be tricky. Yeah. So, like, I, I could understand why people would have those questions. And the answer is, honestly, these guys just wanted to fuck around with the look of the film. Yeah, and like... and from an artistic perspective, it totally works. Um, now, uh, uh, Orlock openly tells him, too. He gives him more hint. Orlock is not subtle at all. He goes, let's linger a bit, because I sleep by day. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I I work the night shift at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> I get home at seven in the morning, so I sleep during the day. But then I flip the burgers at night, <laughs> and uh, so he sleeps on a uh, he and he stays even as he's repelled away. Hunter cannot leave this man. He's still compelled by the business at hand, but he's also confused. This madness is swirling around him. Um, it's, it's, it's implied that the count already started biting at him and kind of draining him of life. Um, and he sleeps on a chair in a way that would kill anyone's back like that. That way he's like lounged back is just like, it's meant for dramatic purposes, but I'm just like, dude needs a fucking chiropractor in about two months. And, um, and then he has this, he wakes up to a little bit of confusion and he has this hearty breakfast, uh, that was just kind of left for him on the table, which was really kind of a breakfast feast of dinner, to be honest. Like, it's yeah. actually dinner for breakfast. And uh, then he goes for a stroll, and he writes a letter to Ellen, and he he's trying to explain these two bite marks on his neck. Um, and he goes, the mosquitoes are a terrible nuisance. Two, two just bit me on the neck side by side, quite close together. I've never seen, and then I added to myself, I've never seen mosquitoes be that so synchronized in their movement to be able to both draw from blood in parallel lines <laughs> like i hate he... coordinated mosquitoes they always just like... <laughs> that's how west nile virus happened that's how west nile virus happened coordinated mosquito attacks yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're organized they, they, they have a union too um <laughs> and now uh he hands the letter off to a writer and then, then later that night orlock signs the deed and as he's signing the deed he notices a picture of ellen and he goes your wife has a lovely neck <laughs> <laughs> Which is, of course, what you say to any real estate agent when you see a picture of their yeah, wife. Yeah, of course. I mean, just even your friends being like, hey, Zach, I think your girlfriend has a really nice neck. Why, <laughs> thank you, Henry. Your girlfriend yeah. has a lovely neck, too. Thank yeah. you. See, it's, it's a common compliment being thrown around amongst men. That's hey. That's... <laughs> That's why if you see Beyonce Knowles in person, you say, hey, you have a wow. lovely neck. <laughs> what an amazing neck you have. <laughs> and if you see Channing Tatum, you go, gee, what a lovely wow. neck you what have. What an amazing neck. neck. <laughs> what an amazing neck. Uh, when you go to Willem Dafoe and you go, gosh, you have a neck. <laughs> wow, Willem Dafoe. It's nice to meet you. Anyway, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> That's not fair. He's handsome in his own way. Listen, Willem Dafoe, if you're listening, you have a beautiful <laughs> neck. We would Will, love Will, to vampire it, I guess. <laughs> so. Will, Willem Dafoe, if you're listening to this, I fucking love you. <laughs> <laughs> I dedicated an entire month of celebrating you on Twitter with Dafoe December because you had two of the most prolific releases in December, one of which got very little screens. Damn it. <laughs> 
There you go. Listen, William Defoe, you're a fan. Come on the show. Talk L- about the lighthouse. Y- yes, talk about the lighthouse. Talk about Spider-Man. Talk about yeah. Nightmare Alley. Talk about the Boondock Saints for five minutes and leave it at that. Our schedule is very open if Willem Dafoe wants to come on the podcast. And and, so. and if Willem Dafoe can come dressed as Count Orlock, I am totally That's the on best board. Case with scenario. <laughs> so I want you to drink schnapps and eat a bat's head off in the middle of our chat. <laughs> I will pay you whatever E. Elias Mirage paid you for Shadow of the Vampire to come and do that in my parents' basement. (laughs) Um, Now, he does try to escape. Um, uh, We... We, we get him versus the, the, the whole wife has a lovely neck. More signals are going off for uh, for Hutter. Hutter's starting to get scared. Uh, in his room, he goes up and finally starts reading the book. He finally starts to heed the warning. And the book goes, At night, the same Nosferatu digs his claws into his victims and circles himself on the hellish elixir of their blood. Beware that his shadow does not engulf you like a demonic nightmare. Demonic, by the way, is spelled D-A-E-M-O-N-I-C. I I wonder if this is like old English translation before they they streamlined the process. Demonic, you know, that... Yeah, I, I mean it's it's fine. Like it still sounds pretty cool. You could make yeah. a. They made a movie called Barbarian not too not too long ago. You could make a movie called Demonic, and it would yeah, still sure. totally work. Oh yeah. Why not? Yeah, get ready, Harlan, to direct it, and then Paul Schrader to direct it, and see which yeah. volume, see which version hits theaters first. Um, um, for anybody who doesn't know that reference, that's a reference to the Exorcist prequels in the two thousands that got mishmashed around. Um, <laughs> But so he tries to escape, and then there's this shot of Orlock across the hall that is just unsettling as shit. Um, and Orlock enters like this unearthly zombie when we cut away to Hel- Ellen. We cut away to Ellen, fearing something terrible has happened. So he's using cross-cutting now to translate the connection between Ellen and Orlock. And... From the get-go, we are treated to something that doesn't require a title card to explain it. We are given the visual cue by editing, by performance, and by the mood that Murnau sets in order to create something that does not require dialogue. And that's where I feel this film would benefit from no title cards if the moments were simply all these. That there are things that come up later that do require explanation by title card. So if anything, it's like if we could just limit this to exposition and not dialogue card. Yeah, I think you would hit your goal closer than most. Definitely. Um, and uh, uh, his uh, uh, the we have she goes to the window and begins to start walking like a zombie on the ledge of this terrace before fainting inside the ship owner's arms. She's staying with the ship with a ship owner, uh, a friend of theirs. And he gets alerted after smoking the longest pipe to the ground ever imagined in history. This is a hookah pipe, essentially, yeah. gone gone awry or astray. Um, that like that's paraphernalia you want to see in a head shop, uh, <laughs> uh, just just to be unique. And uh, the shadow envelops Hutter, intercut with Ellen crying out for him, and as if drawn by the cries of Ellen, after his shadow envelops, Orlock retreats. 
Uh, and then the doctor on Ellen's end goes, it's just a case of blood congestion, which we've all had that. It's like, a, it's like a sinus infection, except your blood uh, makes it difficult to breathe. and happens all the time. Your blood, your blood excretes mucus and whatnot. And also Obviously. you... And if you've got blood congestion issues, be sure to stay away from cats, because that usually uh, makes it worse, especially if you're having Don't tell the demons. Thing. Yeah, don't tell the demons, you know? Don't tell the demons, the cats, anybody. Like, just no. blood congestion will ruin you. I wonder if there's a handy-dandy drug at the drugstore for blood congestion that works like, uh, like a Sudafed, you know? Like, I hope so. <laughs> Bludafed. <laughs> Bludafed. And you spell it B-L-O-O-D-E. Yeah. Fed. Yeah, there, there you go. go. See, like, we, we've created a new drug on the market that you can make meth out of. Wow, we suck. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> What's, who's this Walter White? We're pretty smart. <laughs> Henry, <laughs> let's sell meth. <laughs> I can't wait. Now, Hutter uh, awakens and starts to investigate the horrors of the night before, and he discovers Orlock's casket, and there's this shot of Orlock's uh, head coming through the slit of the coffin that's open, and it's just his eyes like going staring up at him. It's like, oh, <laughs> there's a comparison shot from a film we talked about two weeks ago with the creature from the Black Lagoon. When it's in the cage in the water, it's just kind of staring blank at you. This is what it reminds me of. So I'm wondering if there was kind of an homage to Nosferatu within that. Yeah. I don't think it's the case necessarily, but. The shots look eerily similar. Yeah, um, like it's 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 a mo- it's a monster in its cage biding its time. It's yeah. a haunting looking shot. Um, and then the coffin opens. Hutter goes to explore the rest of the house, and Hutter looks down below to see Orlock loading boxes of his native soil and himself in the coffin as the hearses dash off under his command. And it's basically stop motion. You're watching these frames like yeah. photograph at a time, and. It's it's kind of primitive because the effect that they're wanting is what we would do with CGI today. Yeah. You'd have like people in green suits loading the coffins to yeah. emulate weight among somebody lifting it up. But yeah. I got to be honest, I love the look at it because it adds to the mood this movie's already setting for I us. I completely agree. Yeah, I don't know how to explain it. It's just that the the pace of the animation only works in this capacity it can't I, I don't want it to be fluid because this movie is already unsettling as it is i want the animation to be unsettling as well i agree um but at the same time you could underlay a score like this of like the popcorn music like so it's a, it's a catch-22 on the one hand it is unsettling on the other hand it's hilarious yeah um uh, and then hutter escapes from uh, the castle, uh, um, after Orlock has dashed off to the ship, he escapes with the old bedsheets trick, you know, tie a bunch of bedsheets and escape that way. Um, and then we cut to the raftsman carrying the cargo of Orlock, um, and it's it's kind of like the fr- uh, the hobbits getting to the village of Bree, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. but in, uh, Orlock is just like, take me to the inn, I have to see Gandalf. <laughs> like, yeah. um, and then we cut to the end of Act 2 here, and then Hutter is brought to a doctor by farmers. He is awakened, he has been yeah. found in this forest, he's been through a terrifying ordeal. The title card says, Nosferatu was coming. 
Danger was on its way to Wisborg. Professor Bulver, a Parcelasian, who was then investigating the secrets of nature and its unifying principles, told me about it. Caskets filled with dirt were loaded into the double-masted schooner Empusa. Now, let's talk about Professor Bulver for a second. So he's essentially the Van Helsing equivalent. Yeah. If Van Helsing were incredibly pointless. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of the day, yeah. <laughs> like. I, I I like the visual illusion because, like, basically we see Bulver in uh, teaching students. The title, One of the title cards says, I should note that in those days, Professor Bulver was teaching his students about the dreadful methods of carnivorous plants when viewed with the horror of mysterious workings of nature. And we see them looking at a Venus pie trap, and we get a really cool shot of a Venus pie trap yeah. trapping a fly. And then there's the title card that goes, like a vampire, no? <laughs> In case you didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> then Professor Volvar comes out of the screen, like uh, like in Sherlock Jr., and just yeah. goes like, look, look, this is a fly trap, and it has teeth like a vampire, and it sucks the life force from the fly, you see, so like a vampire. Yeah. All right, I go back into the movie now to do nothing. <laughs> and <laughs> and because, yeah, unfortunately, they eliminate, because it, it, in a sense, in this script, the need for a Van Helsing is kind of pointless. Yeah. It's like, I, I, I actually think of it in terms of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Yeah. That film finds a balance between having the Van Helsing character but focusing on the connection between uh, Mina and Count Dracula. Um, but these versions, these disparate versions between Nosferatu and Dracula from 31 are dealing with two different approaches to the character. Um, one is just far more sinister in terms of its intent. Nosferatu hints at a love story. Yeah, It hints broadly uh, at the love story even though Terror is more inflected in it because both stories ultimately, at the end of the day, are talking about uh, 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 have a they have a xenophobia attached to them, to say the Definitely. absolute least. Um, in fact, there's a we'll, we'll, we can get into this discussion later, but there are like th- there are elements of Nosferatu that uh, coming out of early Germany don't play well today. I agree. Um, but anyway. Um, we get Professor Bulver's shtick about the Venus flytrap. Um, uh, at the same time, we see the Impusa being loaded, and we look at the cargo, and the cargo says six crates of dirt for experimental purposes. <laughs> when you Experiment- want to experiment with your dirt, we have this over here. So, <laughs> Dirt scientist. Yes, I am a dirt doctor. Dr. Dirt is my name. Uh, I'm in this coffin. You can't see me, but I've written this note to let you know that I am a dirt doctor on my way to Lisborg to bring forth a dirt that will end world hunger because you can eat the dirt. Ooh. (laughs) Delicious. It's like, you know about a mud cake or a dirt cake? Well, I've basically done that and made all of the dirt in Transylvania chocolate. Nice. (laughs) So now everybody can eat it and there's no world hunger anymore. Goodbye. Diabetes, sure, but no world hunger. <laughs> um, now uh, we see the also that Knox has is is fully under Orlock's spell because he is now in a sanitarium. 
<laughs> There's a big jump from Knox running the estate office to throw him in the throw him in the loony bin. Yeah, and uh, he's he keeps shouting, "Blood is life! Blood is life!" And this is something that comes from the Christian allegory that's attached to Dracula. Um, like the blood is the life, Mister Renfield. We talked about that last year with Dracula. Another one you have. Knox, this Renfield-esque character going, blood is life, blood is life. And he's catching at flies and trying to eat bugs off the wall. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and <clears throat> Ellen, meanwhile, is pining away for her love at sea, and she's playing croquet. Uh, or her friends are playing croquet, I'm sorry. Yeah. When they receive a note from Hutter, and it's the note from earlier, which is like, two mosquitoes bit me. <laughs> I don't know why they're so coordinated, I tell you. And, um, uh, uh, everything kind of intercuts at this point. We get Knox stealing a paper from an orderly, and we're revealed. A, we we get more information about a plague. A uh, plague epidemic has broke out in Transylvania and in the Black Sea ports of Anna and Galaz. Masses of young people are dying. All victims appear to have the same strange wounds on their necks, the origins of which is still a mystery to doctors. The Dardanelles have been closed to all ships suspected of c- carrying the plague. And then the movie kind of Tarantino's it and goes like, "All right, I'm going to show you how we got to the play." Yeah, and then, uh, and, the, and then you have, uh, and, and then you have uh, uh, a, a, a soundtrack guaranteed to bring forth the '70s as we get onto the Demetra or the Impusa in this case, um, and we get the shots of the voy- of the voyage through the ocean and the water looks magnificent. This is gorgeous looking exteriors on the ocean. Yeah, this is fantastic. It, it, it- Again, like going back to what I said at the beginning, there's a lot of cinematography in this that's really impressive for the time. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. shockingly so. You can see the money on the screen. Yeah. Which is a benefit to us and a detriment to Alban Grau. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. That's that one dollar I saw that one time, and there's the other dollar, and it's all floating here in the ocean. Um, now these, uh, and we have this. We have a sailor going mad below deck because the scourge of Orlock has already begun here. Uh, this ghostly apparition of Orlock appears and disappears uh, as an allusion to the young sailor, and it actually is kind of like it takes me aback every time I see it because it's kind of like a high bye situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be back for you later. I just felt like fucking with you for a moment, <laughs> like. And uh, and we get the plague devouring the ship. There's a shot of the crewmen opening up the casket with uh, an axe and a bunch of rats come out. Yeah. So we're establishing the plague in the form of the rats as well. Um, it's Orlock, but it's also like he's carrying forth something else from Transylvania. There's an additional element here. Yeah. Um, and the plague devours the ship and it plunges its crew virtually into the depths of the ocean. Um uh, then we get the end of Act Three as a result of it, because the uh, Orlock rises from his coffin after that crewman whacks at the coffin and releases the rats, and we get that shot. I think that's the shot that most of us have seen of somebody on a flatboard being yeah. pop propped up right away, and it is terrifying. Yeah. Um, and then in as we move into Act Four, the title card goes. It is difficult to say how the weekend hutter. Um, how the weakened Hutter was able to overcome all of the obstacles of the trip home. Meanwhile, the deadly breath of Nosferatu fills the sails of the ship so that it flew towards its goal with supernatural speed. Um, uh, 
Ellen is intercut further under the influence of Orlock. Uh, this is mad deranged love story going on, as we've talked about. And the ship arrives, and Knox is intercut going, the master is here, the master is here. And he starts shaking around and just and just acting crazy. It's it's wonderful madness stuff. And it's all in one shot, really, one locked-off shot of Knox kind of toddling around in that asylum. Um we get Orlock carrying his coffin all the way to an abode. He's like, no, I don't need a porter. I do it myself. And, <laughs> uh, and he settles in his new place. Hutter, though, returns. He finds his way back and embraces Ellen. Um, and the fate of the crew then gets starts to get investigated. Um, so now that the ship has arrived, everybody's seeing the damage and the result of it. We have that image of the captain tied to the tied to the wheel of the ship, um, which I always assumed was something uh, in regards to, like, forcing him downward, but he actually does it to maintain control of the ship. Mm. And then, as a result, it's easy for Lorlock to go lunchtime. Yeah. And um, uh, so the investigators are recounting the ship's log. Um, we have int- uh, uh, issued proclamations of danger of plague, Return to your homes and bolt your windows. The investigators are taking no chances. There's a proclamation. Be at, be be it decreed by the municipal authorities, forbid the citizenry to transport suspected plague stricken to the hospital, as they shall only spread the plague through the sheets of our through the streets of our town. So it's like being told if you've got COVID, guess what? You're just staying at home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no hospital, nothing. Yeah. Uh, and then we get the end of Act Four. It's a pretty quick act. Yeah. Um. And then we get into Act Five, and it's uh, there's crosses drawn outside of the doors of town. Uh, everything is falling under a superstitious uh, a superstition that the town is in a panic. There is danger on the streets, and the Christian allegory of it. I feel at this point you can sort of talk about the elements of Nosferatu that don't necessarily hold up when you think about it thematically. Now, uh, there is a a broad a broad observation of Orlock arriving on the ship, um, bringing the plague with him. Um, uh, there is a there there is a thought that this has anti-Semitic undertones. Okay. Um, this falls this falls in line with the fear of the other. Um, coming into town and spreading disease and terror. Dracula as a novel has that. Yeah. But it's not... I I believe that it is a little bit more broad, unless I am wrong. If a literary expert wants to correct me on that, please do so. But there there are allusions in, in analyst essays of this film to his long claw-like fingernails and large bald head having stereotypical Semitic features. Well, what I will say, I'm friends with a lot of Jewish people and uh, none of them look like that. So I'm going to say that I think you can probably like this film, even if this film was created with the intention of anti-Semitic basis, I think you could definitely still enjoy the film if you believe the whole death of the artist theory where if you can separate like because i don't think this film is inherently anti-semitic i think you can kind of draw the comparisons to anti-semitic ideals but i think you can also 
enjoy Nosferatu and separate it and look mm-hmm. at it as what it is being basically, you know, it's a vampire film that involves a plague or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. don't think you need to make that. The film doesn't ask you to make that connection. So I think you can enjoy it without that connection. And so, well, yeah. well there might be that basis there. I think you can look past it. And so here's the, here's the reason why it's important to bring it up while course. also yeah, yeah. Dis, while also dispelling it. Definitely. This is a period in Germany where yeah, there is yeah. this like, that is that's there, a good point. <laughs> post-war Germany, they're looking for somebody to blame for their woes and worries yeah. and this is something that will start to arise even more prevalently in the late 20s and early 30s. Um uh Professor Tony Magistrale who uh wrote a he wrote a book that I want to actually dig more into uh because I think it would be a fascinating point for this for this particular uh, show, uh, Magistrali wrote a book called Abject Terrors, Surveying the Modern and Postmodern Horror Film. Now, he points out, Murnau was homosexual. Yeah. Now, this isn't going to... Dis- de- this isn't going to be definitive proof of him not doing anything, but um, it's ri- he writes that it would have he would have been presumably more sensitive to the persecution of a subgroup inside the larger German society. So this combined with the fact that we, we talked about Hans, his friend, his poet friend that died. He was Jewish. Yeah. He, it's not, it's not to say that that's definitive proof that there's no anti-Semitism contained in the context of the film. However, it is unlikely that Murnau is intending that. Yeah. If anything, it's drawing from a broader concept that Dracula itself possesses as a story. It has an inherent xenophobia attached to it based off of the story that was written. Sure. Yeah, so yeah. when it's coming from Germany <laughs> at this time, it's going to draw an illusion whether people want it or not. Yeah, it's a lot of bad looks around the around everything. But Murnau went off to Hollywood. At a certain point, his allegiance to anything German seems to be kind of like tedious at best. Yeah. Um and so um we get the but we have the plague inhabiting this town. Um at this point with the crosses drawn around the uh, doors of the town and everybody's seeing coffins being processed down the street because of all the dying people in the town. Um, we have Ellen starting to investigate this book that Hutter brought back with him. He brought back his vampire manual. Um, and uh, she reads a passage that he uh, read before the shadow consumed him earlier on in the film. It said, Deliverance is possible by no other means but that of an innocent maiden make us the vampire heed not the first crowing of the cock, this done by sacrifice of her own blood. So it basically means, well, in order to stop the vampire, you're going to have to die. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it point, Ellen points to a wide shot of Orlock peeking from the window across the way. So he's he's uh, spying on him. He's rear-windowing him, yeah. if you will. Um, and Orlock also said, like, you don't need a search warrant to go in there and bite that lady's neck. Just go in there and do it. And <laughs> um, uh, we get... Ellen starting to go mad as a result of this. She even says, that's what I have to look at every night. <laughs> like, uh, and uh, 
Uh, late in the night, when the screen is tinted blue as the devil himself, Ellen sees a line of caskets proceeding down the street as a parade of the plague. And it is haunting as shit. Like, that is unnerving. You don't need a vampire in there. That chills your fucking blood. Definitely. And it's and with it being silent too, it carries another another air of mystique about it. It's just going like there's there's nothing punctuating it. There's no like there's no jaunty jolly music to make it a Monty Python sketch. It's just there. Yeah. Um and uh uh the townsfolk uh speak of a vampire at the, in their midst and as this is happening, they witness that Knox has escaped the asylum by strangling the guard. So he escapes. There's like missing, it seems like there's missing connective tissue here because everything kind of seems to happen at once. Yeah. But Knox, Knox escapes and the townspeople start forming a mob to get after him. And it's the most confused mob ever because they keep knocking into each other to go in each other direction. Yeah. It's actually kind of funny. It's, by comparison, the Springfield mobs in The Simpsons are far more coordinated and organized, <laughs> um, even if their direction on where to go is stilted. Um, and there's this shot from, of a scarecrow from a distance being overwhelmed by the mob. That is glorious. Yeah. That is a great allegorical shot. Definitely. Like, that is fantastic. Definitely. You want to talk about expressionism working its charms this one doesn't have slanty doorways uh, or immense shadows it's a shot of a scarecrow being trummeled to death by an angry mob that is haunting as shit and then we get the possession of ellen um and this is where a lot of the expressionism fully blossoms into the things we know nosferatu to be uh the look of orlock across the way is one that haunts the eyes with his stare uh, he's controlling her like a puppet in a in a soulless fa- in a in a fashion that is just just unnerving. We see these skipping frames to show him opening doors and lurking about. Again, it's that animation that if you put the popcorn song to it, it makes it funnier. Yeah. But but it's still unnerving because he's he's controlling Ellen while he's heading towards his destination. Yeah. Um, and then. Ellen is pleading for Bulver and Hutter leaves to go get him with Orlock on the make. And then we get that, the shot that everybody knows. It's the one we probably first saw in those clip shows of the shadow walking up the stairs. Yeah. Oof. Oof. I had to rewind it because my girlfriend missed it. And I'm like, you missed the best part. Yeah. <laughs> I just got, I got un- unnaturally angry. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, no, 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 I'm rewinding it now. Now we have no choice. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, we get that. And then the sun is beginning to arise as he is approaching her door. And Nock cries for the safety of his master as the sun shines upon the room where Orlock is about to feed on Ellen. Yeah. And we see him feeding on Ellen. And uh, when Orlock suddenly sees that the rays of the sun are descending upon him and he clutches he clutches himself in fear as he starts to fade away into smoke. So Orlock dies, but in the process, Ellen has sacrificed herself. We get Knox intercut saying, the master is dead, and he just kind of seeps into an unconsciousness. I thought he might have died because Orlock died, yeah. but it's kind of like unclear. Um, and then... Ellen awakens for a moment, bright as a daisy, calling for Hutter, and she sinks into his arms as he arrives, then dies. 
having lived long enough to embrace her now widowed husband. Um, and the title card at the end goes, and the truth bore witness to the miracle at that very moment that the great death came to an end and the shadow of the death bird was gone as if obliterated by the triumphant rays of the living sun. And then we see the castle in ruin as the appear as the end appears. So we get, we, we've, we're kind of treated to a Dracula tale that is more emotional in beat than plot. Yeah. It doesn't have plot beats. It has emotional beats. I would agree. It's been kind of difficult, honestly, to get through this plot description the way we have because ultimately, with a silent film in particular, and maybe this dictates how we discuss these subjects going forward, ultimately, you are... We are trying audibly to describe a visual piece. Yeah. And I think that that's difficult when you uh, you can't encapsulate the imagery on a visual spectrum. Yeah. Now, luckily, this is being recorded over Zoom, so this could be a video component. It very well down could the line. be. You know, it could. You know, um, and and I'll and I can include the visuals that we're talking Subscribe about. Subscribe to our but- Patreon. <laughs> the one that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, no. Subscribe to Count Orlock's Patreon. Get get Orlock to Wisborg Fund. <laughs> I I'm tired of living in my parents' old house. I want to make a fresh break in Wisborg and get on the movie scene. Listen, it's what's required. <laughs> if you send me five dollars a piece, I think I can make my Hollywood dreams come true. By Hollywood, I mean Wisborg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My Wisborg word <laughs> dreams will come true. <laughs> what do you get for this GoFundMe? Nothing. I spare your life. <laughs> and a t-shirt. You'll get a t-shirt with it. <laughs> you get a t-shirt. <laughs> An Orlock 2024 t-shirt. <laughs> Orlock Knox 2024. <laughs> Make Wizborg great again. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> um, now, uh, as we've talked about this film, though, it also does have a score. And yep. as we've talked about a little bit earlier on, Hans Erdmann composed an entire score that was performed by, the, by a full orchestra at the Berlin premiere of this film. Most of the score has now been lost at this point. It's gone. It's done. But as I found in the notes during research, um, the score, 40 minutes of the work of the score was published by Erdman in 1926, four years after the film's release. Um, And it served for the basis of the reconstruction of the score by Bernd Heller. Bernard Heller is the one who does the score that I believe you hear on the Kino. Mm. But the surviving element is the two-part Fantiche Romantiche Suite, which consists of five short pieces. Then Heller adapted pieces like Der Wolf, Treachery and Vengeance, Kinothenken, Gallop. These are pieces that he kind of incorporates that they're in tone and keeping with the style to an extent. But then there's another version that James Kessler and Gillian Anderson did that, as I mentioned, they composed music that actually fit Erdman's style. Yeah. Um, and for more details, um, I would I would visit um, uh, the na- the I, I would visit a, the National Gallery of the Arts website where they describe how the suites are different. Um, now le- we'll talk about the uh, uh, release of this film. 
there was an ad campaign uh, placed in issue 21 of Bun und Film, as we talked about earlier with uh, the Monster Show discussion um, and the Alban Grau story that we heard earlier. Um, it opened in the Netherlands on February 16th, 1922 at the Hague Floral and Olympia Cinemas. It premiered in Germany on March 4th, 1922 at the Marmosal of, of the Berlin Zoological Garden. So it premiered in a zoo, uh, which I've never heard of a premiere happening in a zoo. It's a new I don't bucket think- list for myself. I uh, did the zookeeper even premiere at a zoo? That that's a lost opportunity if it did. That <laughs> so, like. it would have been a perfect opportunity. Night at the museum should have premiered at a museum. Oh my god, we um, need more event- zoo screenings of things. We, <laughs> like. we we need we need more zoo screenings of animal based films, horror or not. I want the Doctor Doolittle movies in a zoo now. Yeah. Fucking, I would love to show Beast to a bunch of lions. Just to see what they think of it. (laughs) It's just a bunch of lions sitting in lounge chairs smoking cigars going like, I feel like I'm being attacked here. Do you think lions would connect with the Lion King? Or do you think they would find it cultural appropriation? I think they find it cultural appropriation. Yeah. It's like, not the look, story this... of lions. It's the story of what humans think the story of lions is. We're we're not a monarchy. We're an anarcho-syndicist commune. We're taking each turns de- designating a specific officer of the week. Everyone knows <laughs> that lions love anarchy. And so... <laughs> <laughs> And um, but actually, that would be, break the question: What do bats think of Nosferatu That's or Dracula, question. for that That's matter? Yeah, question. you know, they're just like not enough bats. <laughs> That's why we like <laughs> Batman more. We actually see bats. <laughs> oh, we, whenever, Jerry, whenever when we saw Dracula and there was just a bat on a string, we were pissed. We were like, that. That's not unfair. <laughs> Do you know why that's unfair? Because an actual bad actor could have been hired for that. But no, they just decided to use a rubber one. And rubber bats are not real bats. Typical Hollywood. Not looking at it's, the bat actors. That, it's, it's, so. it's, a, it's appropriation. This and Scarlett Johansson are two of the worst controversies in acting history. This just in, Scarlett Johansson cast as a bat <laughs> in the remake of Nosferatu. <laughs> You get Robert Eggers going, all right, Scarlett, I want you to flap your wings. Hey, listen, Johansson, she will put in the work to make it Oh, I know she will. She made me believe she was a black widow, but can she make me believe she's a vampire? She made me me believe that she might be Asian in whatever that movie was. (laughs) 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 Oh, my God. Anyway, though the movie premiered in Germany at a zoo, um, it was a it was planned as a large society event evening entitled Das Fest des Nosferatu, Festival of Nosferatu. So like Nosferatu Con twenty two, <laughs> and because uh, it was in nineteen twenty two, this movie is a hundred years old, Henry. Oh wow, that's fun. This year, as of March fourth, it's a, or as of February sixteenth, it's a hundred years old. Um, this was, um, and the guests were asked to arrive dressed in Biedermeier costumes. Um, so they were asked to dress in this kind of like eighteen hundred, early eighteen hundreds style of dress that would have been prevalent during the Napoleonic Wars. Um, and uh, the, the German cinema premiere itself took place on March fifteenth, nineteen twenty-two, at Ber- Berlin's Primist Palast. 
Um, there was a sound version called The Twelfth Hour, A Night of Horror, um, which is not totally known, but it was an unauthorized and re-edited version of the film that was released in Vienna on May 16th, 1930. Now, you might be asking, well, why was it released if we have the controversy around it that we have today? Well, not everybody seemed to care about the fate of this film and getting sued by Stoker's widow. Um, it, uh, it, it's, it's really strange. So I'm actually gonna, I'm actually gonna pull up, um, there's a wonderful site that exists called brentonfilm.com. Uh, if you've never heard of it, it's a great site dedicated to articles surrounding silent film by, uh, experts that contribute all across the gamut. Um, now, the bottom line is Murnau, Alban Grau, none of them acquired the rights for Dracula. Um, the alterations that were made were an attempt to disguise Nosferatu's origins and avoid accusation of plagiarism, but it wasn't enough. And per this article on Brenton Film, which I will link, um, this is what it says. On its release, Prana Film was sued by Stoker's widow, Florence. The film had not been a financial success. Failure to secure widespread distribution in their home country and the U.S. had hurt Prana considerably. So here's part of the issue. They could have probably fought the court case and won. Feasibly, they could have won if they really worked their magic and been like, what are you talking about? Orlock's not Dracula. What? Yeah. Um, you could have maybe gotten away with it, maybe. But... They, it was not a big, huge hit. Prana Films lost money on this. Um, the litigation was ongoing with Florence Stoker, and it caused more damage. And by the time she eventually triumphed in July of 1925, Prana Film had already declared bankruptcy. Um, now, the court case itself is riddled in in public domain issues, but basically, there's a there's a there's a boiling point. Of this, by the time Prana had exhausted its appeals, it was of May 1925. Florence had already licensed Dracula to the playwright Hamilton Dean, who would make the version of Dracula that would become the universal horror version of Dracula. Um, uh, and so, distributing Nosferatu, uh, she had her eye on selling the now marketable film rights. So, distributing Nosferatu under the Dracula name was not an option. And then by 1925, the film's commercial value seemed to have been negligible. So to, so to Florence, the best thing to do was to burn the nitrate. Per Nerdly Pleasure's blogspot, which is linked through Brenton Film, it reveals it would have taken more than five years before Universal brought the, brought the film rights from her for Dracula. Now, Nosferatu doesn't disappear as Florence hopes. There are prints that had already been released in France— and by the time she sued, uh, there was an altered German version called The Twelfth Hour, which we just talked about with sound effects added. So Prince kept finding their way around. Having already been released in France, a copy made its way to Britain, and she litigated against that. But another version had already been sent to the U.S. at a certain point. Um, by the end of the 20s, Nosferatu is scattered to the wind. Now, these prints vary. Not everything is working off of the negative. So the, uh, the she, Stoker never really loses interest in quashing this. 
1925, the Film Society of London was planning a screening of Murnau's film, and she did her best to stop the showing and to destroy the film. There was an overall order to basically destroy all the negatives, but Prince survived. The restoration that we see is coming from Prince across the world. Yeah. It's not just really one main one, and you have to... You have to compensate for things that are lost when you do these restorations. There's occasions where the film loses footage as a result over time. Metropolis has this problem. Mm -hmm. uh, there's still footage missing from Metropolis. Yeah. Um, and uh, the uh, by the time Stoker's widow dies, uh, the there's a bunch of other descendants, and they kind of. Uh, that they, they, they kind of benefit off of the, the deal made by Universal. But that all of the known stories by Stoker are published by 1914. Now they're all public domain in any country. So now Dracula is public domain. So now at this point, Dracula is not only able to be released, but able to be released by anybody. And so it's 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 strange that a film that seemingly seemingly could have been lost to time is not only readily available, but has beaten Bram Stoker's widow all these years later. Yeah. Uh, and Murnau's Murnau's earliest works are usually lost. Like the, like Murnau's earliest work is gone. Yeah. This is one of the earliest films we have of his that exists. And Murnau keeps making films in Germany, then goes to Hollywood, makes films like Sunrise, and completely uh, dominates the landscape of Hollywood for a short amount of time. Um, unfortunately, Murnau, as a figure, didn't last long in life. Um, it, it's, it's, it's sad that he... It's sad to know that he dies at the age of 42, um, but he he brings forth an expressionist movement into Hollywood that makes movies like sunrise Four devils city girl, stuff like this that, that, that just make them look beautiful that no other director in Hollywood is going to provide. Um, this is a gentleman too, by the way, who of his main output 1922 onward is where most of the films exist. Uh, and, he didn't make that many films by comparison to Fritz Long. We talked about Fritz Long making a shit ton of films even before going to America. He seems to have made the same amount, but because he died so young, we only got roughly four American films out of him. That's interesting. His last film, Taboo, a story of the South Seas, was released one week before uh, the New York... He died one week before the New York premiere. A week wow. later, the film premieres. I didn't premieres. know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and I'd like to explore Murnau in the American realm the yeah. way we've been talking about him here. Also, we have to keep in mind that Faust is also considered yeah. one of his great yeah, triumphs. Yeah. Um, I mean, Emil Yannings, Gosta Ekman, like that, there's there's a triumph here going uh, going on in the acting realm, and but the the legacy of Nosferatu is supremely relevant. Um, I mean. It's evident alone in Tim Burton. We've talked a lot about Tim Burton as of late because his aesthetic draws from German Expressionism explicitly, Definitely. Caligari being a big one. Yeah. Nosferatu, like he uses shadows beautifully yeah. on his in his work, or at least his earliest work. 
don't know if Dumbo has the same work, same uh, shadow work as Nosferatu necessarily, but well, behind um, the ears. Well, yeah, behind the ears, he got those shadows perfect. Yeah. The shadows have claws. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, there's also obviously Shadow of the Vampire that was done by E. Elias Mirage. Um, but frankly, Robert Eggers has also uh, dipped into the expressionism territory and like literally has been, I guess. It may be inactive, I don't know, but he's been working on a Nosferatu remake. I mean, I feel um, like, uh, I mean, I don't know the status of that film, but I mean, Eggers is clearly one of the only directors working today who takes inspiration from German Expressionism. I mean, I feel like you see a lot of new directors today that take, like, inspiration from, like, seven, from the American New Wave, from fucking, yeah. like, all these different kind of, like, the Cassavetti, like... Clearly, uh, the Safety Brothers and the new Cassavetes. We have a lot of directors who are kind of emulating like the seventies thing. It's interesting to see a director, Eggers, in this circumstance, being someone who has very deep connection to that old-fashioned uh, German expressionist cinema, and is bringing that, especially with like the Lighthouse, of bringing that like kind of idea to the modern filmmaking scene. I would argue that Eggers is. I, I would argue that Murnau is his primary influence above any I would other totally expressionist agree. director. I would completely agree. And it's it's why I think he is one of the only directors who could really successfully do a version of Nosferatu. Not to say that he could do a good Nosferatu, but I think he could, if there's anyone working today that could do a Nosferatu movie, it would be him. What about me, Henry? Werner Herzog. Are you forgetting that I Go made fuck yourself and die, Werner Herzog. No, you don't understand. I made one with my friend Klaus Kinski, who was an asshole in real life. But we made a movie called Nosferatu the Vampire. Then people seem to like that one pretty cool. Sounds great. <laughs> I'll see one of the three films you make next year. Do you, you you cannot make fun of me. I don't even watch movies, so I haven't even watched your You know what? Movie. Werner Herzog <laughs> stabbed me. Like you like to brag about how you stab people. Stab me, Werner Herzog. But as I watched Henry through the Zoom call, and in all the faces of all the podcasters, I saw no kinship with me. No. Only disdain. <laughs> there is no kinship between you and me, Werner Herzog. Only disdain. Just, just like the lack of kinship between the bears and Timothy Treadwell. <laughs> <laughs> Werner Herzog, you know where to find me. You, I will you fight are the, you in a field with a knife. You are the bear, and I am Timothy Treadwell. You are going to eat me in my tent at night, I will Henry. eat you, Werner Herzog, like the bear <laughs> who ate. Not, not even my friend Klaus as the vampire can save us. <laughs> Klaus can be bones that I will lick the meat off of when I devour you, Werner Herzog. <laughs> Um, now, Nosferatu also has had getting away from the Herzog element yeah. of it, because yeah, the, here is his his Nosferatu actually does flat out try to do Dracula verbatim, but they just call it they use Murnau's aesthetic, but they tell the Dracula story verbatim. Yeah. he's called Count Dracula in the movie. Yeah, um, uh, uh, Shadow of the Vampire um, as a film, obviously. Uh, Elias Mirage comes pretty close. I think he brings a lot of theatrical conceptions into the expressionist realm. So it's in a way, the director of The Shadow of the Vampire comes from a similar background that Murnau does. Uh, so it's actually kind of interesting to watch him work with it. Now, <laughs> that movie also, though, 
is very loosely based on history. Like I'm talking extremely loose because yeah. it does neglect it does neglect Alban Grau's contribution and his fascination with the occult. If anything, it sounds like the ideal story would have been Alban Grau being too obsessed with capturing the image than Murnau. Yeah. But it makes it sexier if you have Murnau being like, all right, I'm going to let Greta die and I'm going to keep filming because I'm a masochist because that's the statement on directors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it still works. Like My girlfriend watched it with me last night and she's like, has he gone mad? And I'm like, yes, mad with art. Um, and um, you also have... Um, uh, you you also have um, a Joe Hill l- literally just put out a book called Nos for A Two as a license plate. Yeah, um, you have uh, a 1998 novel uh, Nos for A Two that's um, uh, uh, based around Murnau's life and films uh, from the author Jim Shepard. Mm. American Horror Story literally has Murnau mentioned as a character. Um, in the early 20s, traveling to the Carpathian Mountains, doing research for the film Nosferatu. Uh, this this film has easily found its way into our pop culture sentiments. Heck, sh- uh, what we do in the shadows. Yeah, definitely. What what we do in the shadows has a direct Count Orlock uh, I- imit- imitation uh, in the role of the eldest vampire. So. This image has never left our minds and our hearts. As a horror image, Max Schreck's performance is unquestionably one of the most, I would argue it's one of the most influential images in cinema history, period. It would be on a top 10 list. I would completely agree. It has no, like, it. I don't think it has an equal, and that's the other part of it, is that it has no equal. And I thought it would be good to wrap up by kind of talking a little bit about Schreck, because he's a little bit unknown. Um, he's born in Berlin in September of 1879. Um, and he, uh, he like Murnau had a passion for theater that the father disapproved of. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he graduated from school. Um, uh, and after the, well, sorry, sorry. He started secretly, uh, using money uh, that his mother gave him to get acting lessons. And then after the death of his father, he then goes to drama school. And then he graduates and travels a, a, briefly across the country with Demetrius Schrutz, who was a poet. And then he gets engagements in Mulhouse, Messeret, Speyer, Rudelstalt, Erfurt, and Weissenfels. Um And then he gets an extended stay at the Gura Theater. Um, and he's... Keep in mind, he's born in '79. He starts work. He keeps his he keeps his acting going. He starts receiving training from the Berliner Strata Theater, the State Theater of Berlin, in 1902. He completes that task, mm-hmm. and then he joins Max Reinhardt's company of performers in Berlin. And between 1919 and 1922, he appeared at the Munich Kampersley, including a role in Bertolt Brecht's debut, Drums in the Night. Um, where he plays a freak show landlord named Glub. Um, and then he works on his first film, The Mayor of Zalamia, which is adapted from a, a six-act play. Uh, then in 1921, he gets the job of Nosferatu. Um, so then he teams up with Murnau again for the comedy The Grand Duke's Finances in 1924. Um, and this is a movie that Murnau did not like. 
1926, Max Schreck returns to the theater in Munich and then continues to act in films. He survives the sound era until 1936 when he dies of heart failure. Huh. So you, so this is a character actor who has this one role, and yet he is he has so much more in him. He plays the dog of Venice in The Merchant of Venice in 1923, um, and most of his roles later on in the sound era are very relegated to big character parts. So he seemed like he was more focused on theater anyway. Yeah, but. I think Shadow of the Vampire perpetuates the rumor of like, well, no, Max Shrek was an actual vampire. No, it's just Max Shrek was kind of like a private character. He yeah. and he immersed himself in his art. Yeah, and I feel like it's good to know that he's a he's a person who has other performances other than this. The problem is, is that Max Shrek seared an image into the consciousness of a culture. Yeah. So we're not going to know him for anything other than Nosferatu unless we're deep into the doldrums of early German cinema and early German sound cinema. Yeah. Um, like, and his literally his name has carried forth homage. To, uh, Batman Returns has a villain character named Max Schreck. Yeah. Um, and Daniel Waters created that character comparing him to Max Schreck as Nosferatu, yeah. the vampire. So there is... This movie has so many tentacles in the realms of what we know today. And if they're trying to remake it now with Robert Eggers at the helm, it's proof that the concept, even a hundred years later, has still not left our minds. Yeah. Out of all the films we've covered, this is the first one that is strictly a hundred years old or, or, or older. And I would argue it works even better than it did when it first came out. I would agree. Because... Because the last question I want to ask you, Henry, because we've kind of we we've already talked about how this has influenced people, is this a scary movie, or is it just an unsettling movie? It kind of goes to the individual, I would say, because I mean, kind of going about what I said at the very beginning of this episode, where I said that when you watch the film, you have this unsettling kind of atmosphere with it and i think and i in th to be fair i think that the modern horror scene of like what a24 is doing what all these different kind of indie companies are doing for horror we're embracing an atmosphere far more than just a general scariness mm. and so i think in a modern time with the current horror trends being what they are i think this does work as a horror film I think this does work as a modern, terrifying film. I think if you asked me this question in like 2005 or in 1995, I would disagree. But I think where we have gotten to with horror as a genre and how we talk about horror, how we analyze horror, how we celebrate horror, I think where we are today is very much a pro-Nosferatu environment. And I think... I. Yeah, that's true. I th I agree. Like, I didn't mean to cut you off, but no, you're right. Like, it's it it. I mean, artistic horror has always existed. It's existed for the hundred years that Nosferatu has been around, and even beyond that, you have Carl Dreyer, you have you have Val Luton, you have Stanley Kubrick, even. 
you have people who have elevated the art of horror beyond the confines of schlock and terror, uh, schlock and scare. Yeah. And th- this film seems to always pop up every so often. Think about it. Like, I know we were joking about the Werner Herzog one, but think about it. Yeah. That film appears not too long after a movie like Salem's Lot. Yeah. Which literally has a Nosferatu vampire in it. Yeah. Which is another big influence. This is an influence on Stephen King as well, not just Joe Hill, his son. Um, the the image keeps popping up because it is so iconic and stark, and it seems to evolve with the times and adapt to the times. In that SpongeBob episode, he's a figure of fun that you can use from the public domain. Today. He's an A24 movie that just happened to be made in 1922, as that article on Twitter yeah. so coyly pointed out. And and if it gets people thinking about these early films, okay. Yeah. Don't say that out loud. You know? <laughs> um, if you want your cool yes. card, you got to be more protective of it. But uh. yeah, no, exactly. But like that. But the, but there is a good point. Is is that like this A twenty four wave, and and even beyond A twenty four, Blumhouse yeah, has yeah. Blumhouse has done some of this thanks to Jordan Peele. Yeah. Um. Uh. There's an argument that. This is an argument that I don't think I'm going to uh, get a lot of happy responses from. Here we go. Hall- Halloween Kills is an atmospheric horror movie by design. It's not a plot movie. <laughs> it's right. not a movie about plot. It's not a it, it's it's barely a movie about plot. It's a Michael Myers tone poem. Sure. Now, is it the same as A24's output? Absolutely fucking not. But uh but the idea of like we're going to emotionally follow a character that otherwise has very little emotional resonance in this series beyond being pure evil. Itself. I mean, listen, if David Gordon Green was starting his career today, he would be an A24 kid. He just oh, happened yeah. to come before A24 was a thing. And so I we think gotta, a, David we got to hold of him first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think David Gordon Green's entire style what is just before it's time. And I think him bringing his style to the Halloween franchise definitely acts as a middle ground between kind of like a standard kind of horror that you expect and that quote elevated horror that a24 is providing well that's and 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 this is the thing let's let's break this down for just a big brief second before we wrap up elevated horror is a term that i think gets bandied about in negative connotation Uh, well i would i would say not exactly that i would say elevated horror is a term used by people who don't like horror, but yeah. do like certain horror. And so I think it's right. kind of like a way for like pretentious people like me to basically be like, listen, I like horror, but not all horror. I like elevated horror. And I think it's kind gotcha. of it's kind of carved this niche in a way of people who horror is becoming such the directors that are doing this are doing horror in a way that is so artful and is so progressive that people who do not consider themselves horror people can easily get into it. It's far more accessible exactly. than it's ever been. Yeah. But there's a thread that remains the same with horror films. And Nosferatu carries this yeah. as arguably one of the earliest examples of a fully formed version. So you have the golem before. Mm-hmm. 
But Nosferatu really puts the pieces together, which is we talked earlier about how this film carries the connotations that Dracula itself as a story carries in terms of xenophobia and stuff. Yeah. What I'm about to say does not mean I agree with the German people during the 1920s and 30s. So bear with me. Yeah. But films of that period are being made that express whether consciously or unconsciously the the mood and the atmosphere of the times that they are in. Yeah. And that has never stopped in horror films entire canon. Yeah. In the entire canon of horror history, they are always tapping into a current anxiety no matter what country it's coming from, no matter what region it's coming from. Yeah. It's always tapping into something relevant. And Nosferatu, while the connotations that are applied to it by an uh, by analysis aren't necessarily relevant today, um, there's obviously there's a crowd of people that we experienced for four years that would disagree. Yeah, but there is a there is a note of merit that comes from the allegory that something like a Nosferatu possesses to prove the fact that a horror film can carry heavy subject matter that a drama can and be far more accessible than a drama film can. Ultimately, this is a genre that Nosferatu proves is accessible to anybody that watches it. Like, even if somebody doesn't like silent film, if they sit down and watch this, they they can, if they're willing to, latch on to what's being expressed in the film by way of its visuals. Even if you even if you recognize that the themes in it that are seen from an unconscious nature are garbage, you are still watching an idea fully formed through horror that may not otherwise translate from a silent drama. Like you might you might feel that this melodrama element of it is overdone and tacky in any other circumstance. A horror film from the past can get away with this in a way that another one in a drama version can't. Yeah. You have a, that's the, that's the difference in how horror trends. And now that elevated horror exists in, in a definable quantity, that's why something like Nosferatu can come back to the full, to the, to a fully formed version by Egger. Should it happen? Yeah. The ground has been set for Nosferatu to return. Yeah. Under the auspices of which he started. Yeah. Which is interesting because Herzog's version doesn't necessarily play in that sandbox. I agree. This one, this Eggers would do that. But ultimately it all comes down to, this is a hundred year old movie that still carries weight. That's, that's not the thing you can say about every film. We literally talked about two films up at the top that do not hold up contextually from a historical standpoint, The Jazz Singer and Birth of a Nation. Those films do not hold up because of their content. Nosferatu's content is unconscious, and so therefore it doesn't translate the same way that the obvious on-the-nose bullshit of Birth of a Nation possesses. Definitely. If anything, it's like, I would say, a better teaching tool for silent cinema would be showing Nosferatu by comparison to A Birth of a Nation because you see the assemblage of early silent film and you see what they could do with it with the limitations of technology that they had. Yeah, I don't need to see how the reels were put together. I need to see how the reels were used. Yeah, 
Griffith didn't use the reels that way. He relied on epic grandeur and scale, as we've talked about with American cinema being the epic scale. Yeah. The epic stature. Yeah. Nosferatu is run-and-gun guerrilla operation with access to a studio for its interiors. It it grabs its epic nature on location and then works its magic with the intimate moments. Yeah. That's something that is far more valuable in a lot of respects than watching something like Intolerance. You watch Intolerance to see what's possible. Yeah. You watch Nosferatu to find out what sh- what should be standard. What sh- what kind of imagery should permeate the screen on a given basis regardless of the property. It can be a Marvel movie, it can be an art house film, it doesn't matter. How do you use your imagery? Yeah. Can you emotionally tell this story with little dialogue or no sound at all? Yeah. And Murnau proved it time and time again that you can do that and you can make beautiful poetry out of it while terrifying you at the same time. Yeah. Um, and on that note, Henry, I want to thank you for talking about Nosferatu with yeah. us. Um, I mean, thank you for having me. It's a very high-minded discussion, but we want you back. Obviously, we'll have to we'll have to figure out a way to uh, to have you come back with either more foreign cinema or heck, finding more finding more American works by foreign filmmakers. Yeah, that definitely. We can we can definitely translate. I mean, you haven't touched Lubitsch yet, and uh, that would be a fun. <laughs> oh uh, boy, Lubitsch like, would be a fun thing to explore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like we could talk about we could talk Ninochka. That would be fun yeah. for you. Like that, we could have fun with that. Yeah. Um. But anyway, before we go, but before we go, do you have anything that you want to plug? Anything that you've got coming up on the horizon or? Uh, I mean, if you want to follow me on Twitter, that's my main social media. Uh, I'm at dark underscore Americana. Uh, if you want to follow me on Letterboxd, I'm pretty sure I'm the same idea. You can probably find me the same way. But those are the two social right. medias I use. Otherwise, I'm just living, you know. Maybe you'll hear me. Maybe you won't. But uh, that's the way. Yeah. And you can go back to his uh, prior episodes Definitely. on Ballyhoo and go to The Real Nerds. You, you you can hear him on Real Nerds through through most of the years. You haven't been on recently. But Not we yet, need to get but we're hoping to change Explosion. that soon. Yeah, Film Explosion 2012 is coming in November. So oh shit, yeah, get your, definitely get get your ducks in a row and get your list and yeah. change change it so that the master is number one for all of us. I will, I will, <laughs> I will come through. So yeah, I want you to actively go and change Ryan's list. I will. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that is going to wrap it up for this episode of the Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review on that front. Thank you, Henry, again Definitely. for coming on board Always to talk a about this. Yeah. And coming up next on the program, uh, the Ballyboo is drawing to a close. Oh. Uh, the, hor- the horrors are gone. Uh, the, 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 the madness has subsided. And we're going to go in for some fun. So how about going from the darkness of Transylvania to the lightheartedness of Disney? Ooh. <laughs> uh, that's right. We're going back to Disney. We're going to do Disney in the 30s. Nothing but theatrical short subject cartoons. It's okay. all shorts related. I'm excited. We're gonna talk. We're gonna talk about the shorts uh, of the Disney Studios leading up to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs with the return guests Tyler Maybe and Matthew Murbeck. That's awesome. right. the The two grand riffers from our Disney 40s episode is are coming back to lend an air of expertise and giggles to uh, Disney's earliest output. 
Uh, and additionally, Tyler maybe will be returning to talk more about the Marx Brothers with discussions of a night at the opera, a day at the races, and room service. A triple bill of the Thalberg era films and the one RKO mishap? Question mark? I don't know. It's a cut. It's an it's an okay movie, but there's reasons for why it's not a good Marx Brothers movie. You'll have to stay tuned to find out more about that. And we've got more things coming up down the pipeline. We've, we're going to have Rashmi Manan back on. We're going to have Nate Runkle back on. We're going to have a lot of return guests coming forth with you. Um, and uh, stay tuned for uh, the two-year anniversary episode where we'll have a radio show or two and maybe a story or two to tell from Golden Age Hollywood. You'll never know what happens on those solo episodes. You just have to wait and see. Um, but until all of that and until next time, folks, good night. And remember... Next time you're wandering around the Slovakian mountains, pondering whether or not you'll make it to your destination, and you suddenly see that the driver of your carriage has abandoned you in the middle of the street, and you are left to the devices of a gentleman in a castle that looks like he could be of the undead. Well, just sit back, relax in your chair, and remember, there are such things. Good night. This concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review and on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Our theme was composed by Matty Ghost. Be sure to check out more of his music on Twitch. Our announcer was Henry Jarvis. Look for him on the Real Nerds podcast. This is Zach signing off. Stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification. Oh, my God.